Hello, friends. Welcome to the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Dimmitt. Today's guest on the podcast is Alan Watts. Alan is widely regarded as the founding father of Smith Rock and was a key player in the development of modern sport climbing here in America. Alan established the first 13D in America with East Face Crack in 1985, just a few months after Wolfgang Gulich climbed Punks in the Gym, which was the world's first 14A, which means that Alan was climbing just shy of the world standard and was likely one of the best climbers in the world at the time. Alan is currently 59 years old and still climbs 513 in the gym after a nearly 30-year-long hiatus away from the sport, which is pretty incredible. We talked about the early days at Smith when there were no routes, how Alan started his current routine of eating every other day, his paradigm shift from freeing aid climbs to face climbing. We talked about meeting Hein Zach and wearing Wolfgang Gulich's t-shirt, the overuse injuries that took Alan away from climbing for nearly 30 years, meeting and spending time with Adam Andra when Adam visited Smith on his USA tour, and what Alan calls his little slice of contribution to the sport of climbing. And there's so much more. There's a lot of good stuff in this one. All the videos and routes we mentioned are linked in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Alan is also the Smith Rock guidebook author and is currently working on an updated guidebook, which will have more than 500 new routes. You can expect to see that sometime in 2021. This interview was an absolute treasure for me, and I'm really grateful to Alan for being so generous with this. When I first approached him about the interview, he had never listened to a podcast before, so I really appreciate him taking a chance on me and for sitting down with me in my van. This is a good one, and I'm really excited to share it. So please enjoy this conversation with Alan Watts. What is that thing there? What is that? This? Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of just amazed at this van. I've never, <laughs> I've never actually been in one that's. I mean, you're not suffering. No. <laughs> I mean, really, in a lot of ways, you've got a, you've got a better setup than than I've got in that house. You know? <laughs> I joke about that. I, I really think I might be more comfortable in the van. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. It's not. They might still call it dirt bagging, but it's not. <laughs> no, like, it's really it's not. not. This no. Is, this is it's pretty luxury. I feel living. very privileged, and it's pretty. Like, posh. what's that? That is a sound bar. It's uh, of course a yes. speaker. Yeah. Yes. Uh, it's, yeah. We it's, didn't have sound bars. <laughs> we we had to listen to music without. Well, cassette players in our car. Did was, you travel around and live in your car for? I did a fair amount. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't that many places to go when it comes right down to it. You go to Colorado. You'd go to all the places in California. You go to Joshua Tree in the winter. Yeah, of course Yosemite. But in Yosemite, you always had to drive out of the park to sleep in your vehicle. I, I think I remember having to do that. I don't know if that's still that that way. But um, I wasn't like a Todd Skinner who just mm. life was on the road. Right. I, I was kind of a homebody, and I like sleeping in my bed, um, as minimal as it might be. You know, I had a focus of what I was working on at, at yeah. home was more important to me than, than traveling. Well, in a way, you had the absolute perfect setup, too. I mean, you had cutting-edge climbing in your backyard. I had a good setup. It didn't seem that way at the start. Okay. I mean, it wasn't 
It wasn't like I was 20 years old thinking, hey, I've got cutting edge climbing right in my backyard. It's like, no, I, I didn't at all. Yeah, 200 routes. Yeah, but that's kind of what it evolved into. Mm -hmm. Looking back, it was just like, yeah, that was pretty amazing. Right place, the right time. But yeah. um, at the start, it just kind of seemed like I was adrift. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I just read Hangdog Days, Jeff Smoot's book. Mm -hmm. Everywhere he went, it seemed like he'd run into Todd Skinner's white van with the Wyoming plates. And Todd was just anywhere and everywhere, like you were saying. But at one point he expressed, at least his impression was that Todd was pretty envious of what you had going on at Smith and was really hungry to find something like that for himself and ultimately did at the Wild Iris and outside of Lander, Wyoming. I had a, it was a safe, Smith was a safe zone. It was a place to practice what I was, what Todd was working on, what I was working on. You could kind of um, practice it outside of the fray. You, mm. you weren't just, I mean, if you went to Yosemite or anywhere else and tried to do some, use those techniques or anything, you know, inspect something on rappel or hang dog or you would just, it, you wouldn't be well liked. It wouldn't be well received. Yeah. But at Smith Rock, I could just do whatever I wanted to do. There was yeah. nobody there. And so it was, there was no opposition. There was not a this side is against what I'm doing and this side is for what I'm doing. There were just, there was nobody there. There were just a few of us and we were all kind of pointed in the same direction. Hmm. So yeah, it was nice to be able to do that. If I would have tried to do it anywhere else, I wouldn't have succeeded. Yeah. I was not a rebel. I, I, I was not somebody that was like, you know, screw tradition. I'm going to do things my own way. I mean, mm -hmm. that's kind of what I did. But if I would have been someplace and you know, John Backer would have been my hero and like, don't do that. And it's like, okay, Mr. Backer, I won't, <laughs> you know? Right. But I, I just happened to be someplace where I didn't have that influence. And, you know, that made all the difference. Did you get criticism at Smith by, by visitors? By visitors? No. There was the old guard people yeah. that climbed before me. Um, Jeff Thomas was the person who I really grew up admiring and he did you know, the first 5.11s at Smith Rock. And he was more of a traditional climber and he didn't exactly like what was going on there. Mm. But he had gotten married. He had, he had gone off and was just doing his own thing. He was never visiting Smith. And um, so, no, the only people that were maybe were criticizing me at all were just, just a few old guard people who just were still kind of hanging around. But again, there were so few climbers. There was nobody... Nobody there. Mm. I mean, five days a week I'd go there and uh, there wouldn't even be another person. Wow. Explains all the bouldering and yes. all, all yeah. the traverses. Well, there were no routes. Yeah. Yeah. You, 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 you had to boulder because um, there were no routes. It's harder for this gen it's hard for this generation to understand. It's like, yeah, it is. You know, like, if someone walks in there with a crash pad, it's like, what are you doing, man? Don't you know what you're walking right past all these amazing routes to try? Yeah. Well, it's true. Yeah. So you have a really fascinating way of eating. I, I met you a few years ago. I think we were at the Spring Thing event at uh, Smith Rock, which is a yearly volunteer day that we do. And there's a big dinner afterwards, eating burritos, and everyone drinks beer, and there's a slideshow. I think you were giving a presentation that year. Yeah. And there was a group of us standing around before dinner, drinking beer and talking. I wasn't drinking beer, I think because I was projecting something and trying to send. And one of my friends is giving me a hard time. And you jumped in and you said... Well, I can drink beer because I'm not eating today. 
I, I just found that totally fascinating and proceeded to ask you all sorts of questions about it. So um, tell me about your way of eating. Well, it it just kind of evolved, even though at this point I'm set on it where I, I don't think I'll ever change. Yeah. I mean, I, I climbed, you know, I, I had all my years of climbing, mainly in my 20s, into my 30s. But by the time I was 33, my son was born and I was... I was had overuse injuries where, I mean, I was kind of done. I was burnt out of climbing. And the year before my son was born, actually, no, the day my son was born, I weighed like 148 pounds, which is more or less what I weighed when I climbed. Mm-hmm. And one year later, I was like 178. Oh, man. Yeah. And it wasn't because I was just eating junk food or garbage, but, you know, I wasn't going to McDonald's. It's just, I was completely inactive and I was eating three meals a day and I was 33. Hmm. And genetically I come from a, you know, especially my mom's side of the family. All, everybody is, they're robust, you know, big people. It's <laughs> a graceful way of putting it. Yeah. So I, I just kind of had that predisposition and, and then I like, okay, well, I can't do this. I can't be, I can't be 180 pounds. And so I fought back and I, and a year later I'd lost the weight and then I was, you know, climbing 513 again. Hmm. But then I kind of got out of climbing again. My daughter was born in ni- 1997 and I just started doing other things. And, um, if you don't have to be in shape to, hang off your fingertips it's oh it's a saving grace for breakfast me. lunch and dinner and you just you, you get older it's just easier to put on weight it's yeah. not it's not any weakness it's not any sort of um you're a slacker you eat the exact same way you did when you're in 20 in your 20s maybe even better probably better right but you just don't you're not as active you're older your metabolism is slowed so anyway again i found myself at 180 pounds, 190 pounds, you know, pushing 200 pounds, mm-hmm. maybe by around 2010 or so. And at that point, I was kind of interested. My kids were older and uh, there were, you know, like the climbing gym in Bend became a, a really good thing. And even though I kind of tried to get away from climbing, um, I was, again, I was burnt out on it. And it kept following me. Climbing followed me. It wouldn't let me go. People were still interested. Like, even when, you know, I was traveling back when my son was a snowboarder and we'd go places, and, and every once in a while, I, I'd be like, are you Alan Watts the climber? You know, and, and for a long time, I, I would just say, uh, uh, well, uh, I used to be. <laughs> because... Again, I mean, I, I don't know if I ever hit 200 pounds. I, I remember seeing 197 pounds on the scale uh-huh. at one point. So and nobody lo- would look at me and think, oh, this guy has got a, you know, he's really overweight. I was just a normal average, you know, I'm 5'9". I, I, yeah, I was overweight, but yeah. I wasn't. Um, but to be an athlete, I mean, what I found is that everything I truly loved doing, apart from being a dad and be with my family but the stuff I did for me all was dependent upon me being kind of fit so Mm -hmm. I couldn't I liked I grew up climbing mountains I couldn't climb mountains I'd go up to climb the south sister and I feel like I was having a heart attack because Mm. if you have 40 extra pounds 50 extra pounds it's pretty hard to do yeah I'd go out to Smith Rock usually because somebody would I don't know I'd meet somebody who was like 
I'd know somebody, you know, like in the family or like, hey, I, I, you know, let's, it'd be great to go out and climb at Smith Rock with you. And so I'd go out there and, and I'd try to climb 5'7". It would be like, oh my God, when did this, holes must have popped. When did this climb get to be so hard? There's some things you can do. You can play golf. You can be a great golfer mm. and be 40 pounds overweight. You can play tennis. You can run around the court, you know, but climbing is, you just can't, you can't. Mm. There's just, you can't do it. It sucks. It's not fun at all. Yeah. So at that point, maybe 2010, I decided, okay, I, I got to lose weight. I can't, I, I got to lose weight. But it was really hard to do. It was really hard to do. I tried to do like the uh, low carb, no carb. I guess it'd be the keto diet now where it's yeah. just, you just pretty much, you would eat meat and like high protein and yeah. no carbs. Was that like Atkins? At the, at I don't the even know. You may be... And I, I lost weight, but it just, I mean, I kind of went crazy. It just didn't mm. work for me. And I, and I, and I would lose weight and I'd put it back on. And eventually I realized, you know, I've got an issue with this. This is not, this isn't easy. I, I might never be able to do it. I just don't have the, the self-discipline. I, I don't have the body type. I, I, I'm never going to be able to do it. And I don't know where or why. Um, I mean, it's kind of funny, but... I, I think th for me, the start of it was I had, a, I had a, um, you know, I'm, I'm older, I'm in my fifties. And so you're in your fifties and what you should do is you have your colonoscopy, you know, and to do a colonoscopy, you have to fast for 24 hours. Oh yeah. And so you can't eat and then you take this stuff that, um, you know, so you clean yourself out and all that and you have your colonoscopy. And I did that and I was like, Wow that was really easy. Huh. Like that actually felt great. Huh. Like, and so I thought, I thought, well, I, I might do that more often. And I started doing a little bit of research and it came up this like alternate day fasting thing. Mm -hmm. And I just decided like a mission, like, okay, I am going to, I set this date like four or five months ahead. I am going to lose 40 pounds and I ate every other day. Mm-hmm. And eventually, as I got closer to my goal, which I think was back to be 148 pounds, starting in, you know, 188, I, I sometimes would go two days. And eventually, it became kind of this weird, not-so-good thing where I was starving myself. And oh. it was uh, this weird obsession. And, yeah. You know, and I hit, I hit my target. I, I got back to my weight. It was great. But I also was really kind of flirting with an eating disorder. It's like it's a fine line between doing that and developing some like where it becomes like a mental health problem, essentially. I imagine it's really hard to transition to maintenance. Yeah, and maintenance just didn't work. So in the next year, I actually, you know, I had put on like, I went for a doctor's visit and I had put on like 20 pounds. And so again, it's like, oh, great, I don't want to have to face this again. And so I just decided, okay, I'm just going to go back onto the old thing. I'm just going to eat every other day. And not so obsessively, not with a weight goal, but just, I'm just going to eat every other day. And, and that was seven years ago. <laughs> and that's still what I do. Yeah. I eat every other day. So, and now there's like this research that actually says it's not a bad thing. And there's like time restricted eating. Yeah. And essentially that's kind of what I'm doing. And it's, I'm not really fasting because... You know, I can have a beer or uh, I can have my latte in the morning. It's not a real fast. It's yeah, not, you know. But mostly. I mean, real fasting is not even drinking water. You sure. Know? But I found for me, it, it worked on a lot of different levels. It, um, you can see why there's, in religion, why there's fasting is a, com 
element. Like why, what, what sense, you know, why, why do people fast for, mm. for religions? And, uh-huh. But you, I actually would find that it would make me, make my head clearer. I oh, would, wow. Yeah, I would feel just kind of elevated. Would you say that you feel better on fasting days than... Yeah, but I don't want to... The, the thing about that is, for me, it's worked. For me, I lost, I lost the weight. And, you know, they always say if you're going to diet... Or if you're going to lose weight, you can't diet. You have to make a lifestyle change, which right. is kind of useless in a lot of ways because, you know, if you're going to lose weight, it's one way or another, It's you're going to have to um, suffer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> sure. Yeah. And But for me, eventually it became where, like right now, I've always kind of had a problem with moderation. I had a problem in moderation with my climbing. Mm. And it's just, it's really hard to just like... Oh, I want to have that cookie. I love chocolate chip cookies and I want to have my cookie, but no, I don't eat cookies. I'm done with cookies. I will never eat cookies again. Mm. And the next day it was like, oh God, look at that cookie. My wife makes cookies or brownies are like, oh Jesus, I've got it. You know, yeah. all the time you're making a decision like willpower, willpower. We all have, you know, kind of a limited reservoir of willpower. And if we deplete it, it's kind of exhausting. And so by doing the every other day eating thing, I made a decision, which I made years ago, that this is what I'm going to do. It requires no willpower. Right. None. There's no, like today, is, I, I don't eat today. Yeah. I ate yesterday. I'm not eating today. It's not like there's any denial, any uh, like, oh gosh, I really wish I could eat. I just don't eat. It's nothing. It's it's like nothing. There's no willpower involved. Yeah. And because of that, I'm not, you know, I'm not a overweight person. My weight fluctuates up and down. Sometimes, you know, I feel like I'm after the winter, I'll, I, sh- I should lose a few pounds. And even then I'm not like just a total psycho with it. It's not like, oh gosh, Thanksgiving. Well, that's a not an eating day. So sorry, family. <laughs> I'm just going to sit here and not eat in judgment of all you guys who are eating. Yeah. I, so, and if I'm on vacation, you know, I went to Ireland for two weeks. Well, I'm not in Ireland thinking, oh, well, it's not an eating day. It's mm-hmm. like, no, I'm just, so I'll go two weeks or, you know, and, but then I just go right back to my routine. Yeah. And it works. I don't think it's for everybody. I think it's, I think there are people that it's just totally wrong for them. Yeah. But we all just figure out our our ways. And for me, it it works. It's kind of almost a lazy, easy approach because I, being light doesn't mean that you're in shape. Okay. It it doesn't. Right. So, and I've definitely lost some muscle and I mean, you, you still have to get in shape. But for me, being light means that I am able to play the game. Mm-hmm. I can, I can be a climber again. I can at least play the game. If you're 40 pounds overweight, 50 pounds overweight, you can't even play the game. Yeah. But now, for me at least, if there's a time when I decide I want to train, I want to work at it, I can do it. And before I did this whole eating thing, it's like, okay, I miss climbing. I really want to be a climber again. And then you realize, well, the only way I can be a climber again is to... And I have to lose all this weight, and so, which is takes months and you know a very long, long time. And and now with what I do, it's always there. It's always mm. there. I don't always choose to take advantage of it, but I. It's just one. It's on the table. It's on the table. Yeah. Which, yeah. Exactly. So, and for me, there's no reason to stop 
doing it. I, it, it doesn't leave me exhausted. It doesn't, I, I, I think I'm less crazy now than I was before. <laughs> I, I think it's a, it, it actually works. But yeah. again, I, I'm reluctant to like, there are other people who it would be a, could be a very bad thing. I've never been a person who looks at myself in the mirror and thinking, wow, I sure would like to, mm. you know, have my beach body and, um, I'm not doing it so I'll look better. Right. I don't care how I look. I'm 60 years old. It doesn't, those days are done. That's fascinating. There's some really interesting research in the last several years around moderators versus abstainers. And I think that's an element of it too, where you sound like an abstainer. It's easier for you to just say, I'm not eating today, than have to make a thousand different decisions. Yeah, I can't, I can't do that. It's just, I don't have, I can't do it. I can't be, I can't abstain. I, I think that that's, it's a lofty, like I admire people that abstain. I, I almost don't believe them. <laughs> okay. So for you, if you say I can never have a cookie again, it makes you crazy. But saying I can't have any food today is way easier because you know that there's nothing, it's not, there's nothing to it. I mean, yeah. I can have a chocolate milkshake tomorrow. Yeah. Yeah. I can have a cookie, whatever. And again, if I really want to be at my best, I take out some of the things that are junk. I, I won't have mm -hmm. that cookie or I won't have the chocolate milkshake or I'll drink less beer or that sort of thing. But even at my worst, even if I'm at my worst, I'm not realizing that I have 40 pounds to lose. Yeah. Yeah. And some people are moderators. They're able to eat one cookie and then they're satisfied and they can stop eating cookies. For me, I'm kind of more like you where I can't just graze on one and then be satisfied. No, I mean, I could, if there's a plate of cookies, you had a plate of cookies right here. <laughs> if it was today, I can't eat any of them. If it was tomorrow, <laughs> I'd eat the whole plate. <laughs> so I had asked you if you thought this would work for you back when you were climbing. And it was really interesting to hear that you, I mean, I think you said, no, it, it doesn't seem like it'd be optimal for performance, but you kind of did that in a way anyway because you were just so focused on the climbing. I mean, back when I was climbing, I did, looking back, I essentially did time-restricted eating where I ate all my, pretty much ate all my calories in just like one massive meal. At the end of the day? At the end of the day. So you were just out there so preoccupied or distracted by the climbing that I wouldn't bring food. And eventually I started bringing like energy bars, like power bars. That was okay. the first energy bar. And so I'd, I'd recognize that you needed, you needed to have some fuel. Mm -hmm. And... But a lot of times it would, I would force myself to eat it. I've never been out at Smith Rock or anywhere climbing in the middle of the day thinking, wow, I'm really hungry. Hmm. I, I never, I'm never hungry. I'm never thinking that. But you need fuel. So, And if somebody did that sort of um, routine that I do now, I mean, what I would recommend is you just, you, it, it's not absolutes. You just... If you were climbing, yeah, have something to have something to give you some energy. Mm -hmm. Or if you're training, have some protein. Have a protein, like a protein mix or something in a drink. Or, yeah. Because you still need that. I mean, you don't. Um, like I, when I lost the weight and kind of the way it's been for me, it, is my focus has just been to stay light rather than I'm not working on trying to put on muscle. Mm -hmm. If you really are, I don't, I don't think this would work too well. <laughs> I think it would be a, a mistake. And so yeah. if I was a whole lot younger and I was still trying to do this, um, yeah, I, I, I'd, you know, you can create it and, and do it however you want to do it. It's mm -hmm. not like it's, you know, you're, there's you're no not, rules. Yeah. There's no rules. You're not cheating. I mean, my daughter will say, well, you're not really fasting because you're drinking coffee or with, you know, with milk in it, or you're drinking a beer. And it's like, yeah, there's no, <laughs> I'm not. It, it, there are no rules. This is my fast. I don't care what the definition is. This, yeah. this is what works for me. No dogma. Yeah. 
So you've been climbing in the gym again. How do you think about that with your eating? Do you plan your climbing or training days on the days that you no, eat? or not at all. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I don't notice any difference. Wow. Where I'll notice difference is there's times when I've, I've taken off. I think the longest I've gone is like three days without eating. And I'll notice at that point, mm. I'm, I don't have as much energy. Yeah. Um, two days, I don't have as much energy. One day, it doesn't matter that much. Huh. But also, I'm very used to this. After doing it for seven or eight years, your body just kind of adapts. Yeah. It, it, you know, for a long time, it's going, it's in the starvation mode, and eventually, it just gives up. <laughs> it's like, okay, well, this is the new norm. Yeah. You know, so your body adapts. Gotcha. Cool. So you started climbing at Smith really early, age 14, I think was the first time you went out there. Well, I was 14 when I actually went out there as a climber. Okay. But, I mean, I. You know, I grew up in Madras, which is 20 miles away. And mm-hmm. I um, I went to Smith Rock probably every year of my life. I think you joke at one point in a video that I saw that your first time at Smith was before you were born. Yeah, there's a picture of my mom <laughs> with my brother and my sister who are older. And my mom is like obviously very pregnant. Uh-huh. Back then you could drive up the Burma Road. Okay. You know, and we we're up there and you could see some of the rocks in the background. It's a picture of my mom and my brother and my sister, and I'm obviously there. <laughs> you know, maybe in two months before I was born. I was I was at Smith Rock. So yeah, it was I was there before I've told people that I've, you know, Smith Rock is a place that I was born I was I visited it before I uh before I was ever born and I like to think in some some way that after I'm gone, my, my spirit will still, still be there. I love that, Alan. That's great. So in 78, you go to University of Oregon with Bill Ramsey and you guys meet Chris Jones, Alan Lester, and you start climbing a lot. And I have this note here that just says, and it's a quote from you. It says every variation imaginable. Can you tell me uh, about the climbing you guys were doing then and what that looked like? Well, I started climbing at Smith Rock in 1975. I mean, before that I had climbed, my dad was a climber. We climbed mountains. My dad never, he never took me to Smith Rock. We never climbed. I made my own harness out of, you know, hemp rope. <laughs> I, I, I bought gear. I, I was 10 years old and I wanted to be a climber. And, but I had to meet people. And when I, the first few years at climbing, I was climbing at Smith Rock. It was a very much adventure climbing. I was, it took me three years to go from five from beginning being a beginner to climbing 10a mm-hmm. and really if i hadn't met bill ramsey I, I wouldn't have i mean i didn't really meet bill we were bill and i were born the same day in the, <laughs> oh, same, wow. in the same hospital oh that's amazing and our moms were roommates in the same recovery room okay i'm like six hours older than bill did your dads climb together yeah too? And they, my dad and Jim Ramsey, Bill's dad. You know, if you look in the history section of the guidebook, you'll see those names together. Oh, great. Yeah, my dad was more of an alpine climber. and But anyway, so the, the family, there's even some, uh, you know, our families growing up in Madras, of course, there was like, you know, a Ramsey marries a Watts or... So there's, we're even like related by marriage, you know? The, oh, cool. The, the Ramsey Watts names in Madras are, are yeah, they're big. <laughs> So anyway, but it wasn't until I was in high school and I'd know, known Bill my whole life, but I started climbing when I was a freshman. And it was like later on when Bill started being interested in climbing and I took him out climbing for the first time. And But real quickly, he was the more aggressive, more, um, I don't know, he, he just had a real like personality just like to, he take, he was a little bit less reserved in, okay. in every way, mm-hmm. you know. 
Um, just he was more of an extrovert and, and more of just, you know, he was like a high school wrestler and football player. And, and that was not my, my thing. I was a, I was a runner, you know? Yeah. So when I started climbing with him, he just, at first I was kind of showing him what climbing was about. And then real quickly, he was the one that was kind of pushing me. Cool. But then I was kind of competitive. I had a brother who was five years older. And so I just, my whole life, I just simply lost at everything because my brother just, it was harder to have a brother that much older. Everything you'd play at, he'd always beat you. Yeah. And so I just became pretty competitive. And so when Bill started to push me a little bit, it's like I responded. Uh Uh-huh. And then Bill, we it just we fed off each other. And you said freshman. Is that are we still talking? This high was school? freshman in high school. Got it. So you're when still I started in climbing. Yeah. But then when we went to the University of Oregon, Bill told me he was going there, and he was going there because there was a climbing area right in the middle of town called yeah. the Columns. And I, I was like, great, sign me up. That's where I'll go. This is in Eugene. In Eugene, and yeah. so that's what we did. And we were roommates, and so I went to the University of Oregon for, you know, everybody, they have their colleges, you know, people, they, you know, you, you're a high schooler and then you, then you think about the college to go to. And for me, it was the right college to go to. It was the absolute perfect place, but kind of for all the wrong reasons, it wasn't because of the programs they have or the academic reputation. It was because of this short little columnar basalt in the middle of town that I could walk to. Yeah. And so we just started, we'd go there. We, the first day we were there, we, we went climbing. And, and then I met Chris Jones, Alan Lester. And I don't know, it's kind of like um, just looking back. I mean, I truly believe this. I don't, I'm, I'm not like a religious person. I don't, I don't, but there's some connections there where if you just simply have something in your mind that it's like, this is what I want. You have this target thing that you're looking at. This is what I want. Somehow, if you just stay the course, you tend to meet the people you need. They come into your life. Somehow you just connect with the people you need to do what you want to do. I don't think anybody who's done anything in their life would dispute the fact that they, nobody does it on their own. Mm. We all meet people. There's all people that we meet along the way get get us to where we want to go. Mm. And I would have done nothing in climbing if not for Bill Ramsey, Chris Jones, and Alan Lester. That combination just, that was perfect. Oh, cool. And so, yeah, we would climb at the columns and it was like this, is it a top really, rope crag? It's a top rope crag, and it's really small, but it's kind of legit. I mean, it's real rock. It's like low-angle columnar basalt, pretty smooth with some face holds, and and people have been climbing there since the 60s, and so some of the thinner cracks have been pin-scarred out, mm. and some of the other cracks were wide enough where you could jam them, mm-hmm. but you would just top rope. We would just top rope with, you know, giving each other hip belays, and you would just, <laughs> that's what you would do, and... And it didn't take long before we did all the cracks. The hardest crack was maybe 5'11". And, and then, mainly inspired by Chris Jones, we just started doing things, eliminating this hold or doing it one-handed. Hmm. And so we did everything one-handed. And just all these, I mean, there were probably hundreds of variations. Some of the hardest climbs I've ever done in my life, <laughs> I did there. Yeah. So when I went to Eugene, I was a... I mean, I had done like karate crack with Bill and Zebra, you know, 10A. Uh-huh. And within two years of Eugene, going to Eugene, I was climbing 512. Wow, Just yeah. pin scar cracks and 
just these bizarre little problems. So I had the, I had the skills, and I totally learned it there. I learned to climb in Eugene. Was it just play for you guys, or what, did you have a sense that you were training for something? I mean, it was play. It was both. It wasn't a sense for... There almost wasn't any training for anything because it climbing didn't exist the way it does now. You yeah. Didn't, um, we had a real inferiority complex. Okay. Chris would go to Yosemite and see like the boulder problems and, you know, midnight lightning or... And we had this idea that, you know, the back, backer and Calc and these other people, you know, Ray Jardine... Mark Hewden, they were gods. They were doing things that we could never even imagine. And so we sucked. No matter what we did, we sucked. But we would work hard and we would try. So we, we wanted to just get better, even knowing that there's no way we would ever even begin to enter the realm of the people who were really good. Hmm. But by doing that, it's it's kind of like if you have a bit of an inferiority complex, it's not a bad thing because you once you start thinking that you've arrived, once you start thinking, whoa, I'm really good, then you probably aren't going to improve anymore. Uh-huh. If you're thinking like, okay, well, I did this new 512, but I still suck compared to everybody else, then you just keep pushing and keep working hard. And that's what we did for a very long time. We just mm. kept pushing and working hard. And so by the time I finally left Eugene and showed up at Smith Rock, I, I had some skills. I actually had the ability, I mean, fairly exceptional ability to climb, you know, a very hard grade. But yeah. um, entering this place where, in, in this sport that didn't really even exist. Yeah, so you come to Smith after college, and my understanding is that you pretty quickly climbed through all the routes that were there. There was 200 routes or something like that. Yeah, it didn't take, there were like five 511s, mm-hmm. and it didn't take, I mean, I did second ascents of bunches of the i mean it didn't take very long yeah there's five of them in, like in wortley's revenge and yeah i did a second ascent of wortley's <laughs> that's awesome yeah and so then at what point do you start noticing the face climbs and and what led you to think about bolting because um, i know a lot of people saw those face climbs and they're like oh those look really cool but how are we going to protect those and it just didn't even occur to i don't even think people. people looked at it that way okay i don't even think people looked at the face climbs and thought oh well these are cool how are we going to protect them yeah. i mean i didn't even do that when I started climbing at Smith Rock, all I was thinking about is there are free climbs. Like all the, every route that Jeff Thomas, who had done the hardest, he had done those five, six hardest routes, like Wortley's Revenge, Shoes of the Fisherman, Lion's Chair, those were all aid routes. Mm-hmm. What he did is he freed the aid routes. And so that was the paradigm that I stepped into. Hmm. If you were a climber, you f- at Smith Rock, you freed the aid routes. And so I looked at the routes that he hadn't done and which ones needed to be freed. Hmm. And that was my focus. So I okay. freed, like Sunshine Dihedral yeah. was an aid route. And so I'll free that. And there were a whole bunch of other other routes here and there around Smith Rock. And so for a long time, that was, um, you know, that's just what I did. And it took it took time to kind of, it's a very different thing when you're up, you know, trying to not jamming basalt cracks, but actually trying to be at, you know, leading routes that are at Smith Rock. It, it took me a, a while to, to really get into it, to get good at it. But real quickly, I did the aid routes that I could do. I freed them. And then there were other aid routes that I couldn't do because they were too hard to free. Mm-hmm. And but, but at that point, I was totally committed. Like climbing was, I had dropped out of school. This is who I am. This is what I am. I'm a climber. 
and this is what I will do. And it, I mean, by that point, Alan Lester and Chris Jones had moved to Colorado. Hmm. Bill Ramsey moved to California to go to pursue his doctorate in philosophy at UCSD. And I was just left alone. Hmm. I mean, Alan was trying to get me to move to Colorado. Bill felt sorry for me. It, I, it was just like at Smith Rock, just banging my head against this, the wall trying to climb. I, I don't know even exactly why, but it's like, this is just what I wanted to do. Did you ever think about leaving and relocating? No, I, okay. I, I never. Well, I actually did. I, I was going to move to Colorado at one point, but, uh, but that was a little later on. And initially, no, it was kind of, I was just completely committed to Smith Rock for some really strange reason. Huh. Um, but, you know, once you've done all the aid climbs, then you start looking at, well, what cracks, what other cracks haven't been done? So then you do those, and and then it was like, oh, God, these things really suck. They're painful, <laughs> and they're, they're just, this isn't fun. Yeah. And so eventually, you start thinking, like, well, maybe, you know, the faces are obviously impossible. There's, you don't see any holds, but why not? I'll just wrap down and look. And so you wrap down, and it's like, whoa, there's some holds. Hmm. And it's like, wow, there's just one face at Smith Rock that has holds on it. <laughs> And then you wrap down another thing. It's like, whoa, this one has holds too. Now there's huh. two faces. Amazing. There's two faces, vertical faces at Smith Rock that have holds. How lucky I was that I stumbled upon them. And then you wrap down a third and a fourth and a tenth. And you realize, well, wait a minute here. They all have holds. <laughs> Everything has holds. And it just went pretty quickly from just a shift from when I was just like, was climbing at this uh, area that was uh, climbed out and climbing cracks that were increasingly unpleasant. And then everything shifted where I was looking at all these faces and hmm. especially Watts tots and especially chain reaction where yeah. once those were done and they were actually done a day apart. Oh, um, no kidding. I mean, I did Watts tots I had bolted in 82, I think June of 82. Uh -huh. And I had tried it that summer. It's not a good summer climb. No. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just, it's kind of a one move wonder, but it was just a move. It was just, it was harder than I could do. And 12B, it's a really thin technical yeah, climb. I left Eugene in, after spring term of 1980. I spent two years at Smith Rock, even, I don't know, 82, two and a half years, just doing a bunch of oddball things, freeing a few aid routes. And I was just kind of lost in a lot of ways. I was just, I broke up with this girlfriend and I was just kind of, lost and despondent and, and I was living at home and I was like painting my parents house and they'd pay me because they were you know worried and feeling sorry for me but eventually they came up with this proposition it's like we really want you to go back to school and we will pay for you pay for your you know we'll support you to go to school mm -hmm. it's like oh okay well there's a college in Bend and oh. so the start of 1993 I moved to Bend and suddenly I had my classes and I... This is 83? 83. Okay. January, you know, the 2nd of January is when I moved. And all of a sudden, I wasn't at home. And I had my classes. I had to do well in my classes, but it wasn't that hard to keep up with some things. And I had massive free time. What am I going to do? Well, I'd go to Smith Rock yeah. every day. And so I would just start checking things out. And so at that point, because in February... I did Watts Tots. I finally succeeded on that. And I'd been working on Chain Reaction. I actually yo-yoed it the okay. first time I did it, which I didn't count. But then a week oh, later, interesting. I, I did it, you know, red pointed it. Mm -hmm. So just in that 
that time. I mean, in the early 82, I was just, or early 83, I was going to community college and trying to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And then just in like one week, it went from like kind of flailing to where all of a sudden it was like, I saw the future. Oh, wow. Not just at, I mean, at at first for me, it was at Smith Rock. I saw the future at Smith Rock. But eventually, I mean, really looking back, I saw the future for American climbing. Yeah. So I went from being kind of lost to having just absolute laser focus on what I wanted to do and what my future was going to be. Yeah. And it was a time that I, I'm very fortunate to have experienced that because it was, as it turns out, I mean, I had doubts along the way, but as it turns out, I was right. Hmm. And then again, I met the people, people would come in, you know, Todd Skinner and all these people. And it just, it just exploded and it became what it became. Oh, that must have been so exciting. And what was really cool about it is just that it, um, I don't know, in doing these routes, and also there's nobody telling me no, like that you can't put bolts in on repel. Mm -hmm. Because you're not going to do chain reaction on lead. Right. And nobody was telling me, oh, well, you can't hang dog. That doesn't count. I would do whatever I wanted. Mm -hmm. But there was a time when in 83, 84, especially, where I'd kind of stumbled upon sport climbing. And I was bouldering, I was practicing, you know, doing new routes. I was climbing every day. And so all of a sudden, I was using these tactics that nobody else in the U.S. was using. And I went from being a decent climber to a really good climber at the time. Yeah. Largely because I was the only sport climber in the U.S. <laughs> yeah. And so it was an exciting time to be able to go elsewhere and climb routes and realize, whoa, all of a sudden, you know, these things aren't that hard. Yeah. Hardest routes in Yosemite, it's not very hard. Yeah, you went and repeated the stigma. Yeah, these things just weren't hard. Mm-hmm. And then eventually everybody else started climbing that way. And real quickly, everybody just shot by me. But, <laughs> but still, it was a fun time. It's so interesting that you had that sense of freedom and no one was telling you no, but then you still didn't count the yo-yo ascent and you already had, even in 83, you had this perception, at least for yourself, that red pointing was the authentic. And that kind of came from Jeff Thomas at okay. Smith Rock because he would red point things. Okay. Oddly enough, he would actually fall and, and occasionally even hang dog and, and do a move. And uh, he was way ahead of his time. Yeah. But he, he still kind of bristles. If I talk about that, he's like, why well, did that on just this one route? And, but somehow that to me became like, kind of what I was trying to do. I was following hmm. what what he did. And um, yeah, I had weird, there were weird things. Like it wasn't just the yo-yo. I had this very strict, very strict, no, um, you couldn't leave gear behind. Okay. So no quick draws. Yeah. You couldn't. And so when I did the first time I actually red pointed chain reaction, it was the first time that I had tried a route Again, it's kind of like weird things. You'd, I would never try a route more than once in one day. Oh. You would go down to the park. Usually you wouldn't even warm up. It's like, okay, today I'm going to do chain reaction. You'd try chain reaction, you'd fall. You'd uh-huh. hang, you'd work out the moves, you'd go to the top, you'd lower down, you'd do something else and you'd leave. Oh, interesting. And so at one point I was, after a few days of that, I was like, oh, God, damn, I fell again. It's like, you know, I'm not very tired. I actually feel pretty warmed up. I'm going to wait. 
And so I waited a couple hours and I tried it again. And it's like, whoa, I'm really close. I'm going to wait. And I rest a couple hours and I try it again and I do it. Wow. It's like, whoa, you can try something more than once in one day. Yeah. But because I was doing that, I would lower down. There'd be quick draws hanging because that's, you couldn't, the route's too steep. And, but you couldn't have fixed quick draws. So when I actually did it, I climbed up, I would get to the first quick draw, I would unclip it, I would clip it into my harness, I would clip it, unclip it from my harness and reclip it. And so every quick draw, I would, I'd get up to the lip and I'd like, the quick draw over the lip, I'd unclip it, clip it back into my harness, unclip it from my harness, clip it back in, because that was what you had to do. Wow. So I had these like weird little rules. It wasn't fair to say that I didn't care. There was no ethics and it mm -hmm. was, there was no style or whatever. I had the, but who, who creates the, you know, who decides what, what is legit and what's not? It's, you know, it's, I, that's just the way I was doing things. Mm -hmm. Some of those things I've obviously were rejected and some of them are still, that's what people still do. How long do you think you continue doing it that way? The, the true red point hanging the gear versus I guess, pink pointing. It wasn't until I never put, I never pre-placed gear. I never like pre-placed nuts ever. Okay. That was just not what I did. It wasn't until the Europeans showed up hmm. that I realized like when in 1985, Kim Kerrigan, Johnny Woodward and, and Jeff Wigan showed up at Smith Rock and um, they were like, oh, well, you know, Wolfgang yo-yos all of his routes and, you know, punks in the gym. That was, that was yo-yoed. I mean, oh, he'd leave whoa. his rope overnight and he'd, he'd yo-yo it and everybody's yo-yoing things. And so real quickly it was like, oh, I don't have to do things this way or, you know, fix quick draws, leaving quick draws. Everybody does that. And so there were some things that like the yo-yo thing didn't last. That, that isn't, you know, that real quickly was like, just kind of, that's not what people do. Mm -hmm. But there was a period of time when that was Legit. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the way that people were doing routes. A lot of the hardest routes, you know, the hardest crack climbs in late 70s, early 80s. Yeah. The European influence just kind of, I don't know, it kind of, uh, by that time where I was already doing what I was doing, but it, it there were just certain things that were uh, legitimized. The whole concept of red point leaving quick draws in place. That, was, mm. that wasn't something I did. That was something I borrowed from European climbers showing up. Gotcha. So I want to come back to the summer of 85, but before that, while I'm thinking about it, so chain reaction, when you first did that, 1983, you named it corner route number one. Corner number one. Co corner number one. Yeah. So how did chain reaction get its name? I hated naming routes. <laughs> you have to name your routes. You just do. It's kind of like, yeah, and you, you know, you if you don't up, like naming you put up routes, a lot of them. <laughs> you just have to name your routes. Just like having kids, you have to name your kids, even if you don't like naming things. You gotta, you can't just have your, you can't have kid number one and kid number two. You have to name things. And I don't even remember. I think I was looking through magazines and trying to, there was no internet to try to figure out. And some reason that name came to me just because that's the way that climb felt is it was a one move led into the next. And it was, at the time it seemed kind of like a radical thing where there was just, it wasn't just a climb where you know, you, you, you couldn't stop and hmm. you just kind of had to keep moving every, so anyway, that's where that name kind of came from. But it, again, I didn't, I, I didn't like naming routes and I didn't, that was not my thing. There were always people at Smith Rock who had, 
Never did routes, but had lots of route names. They always say, <laughs> oh, you should name it this, or you should name it that. And then there are people who do lots of routes, but have no names. Yeah. So I was definitely one who did lots of routes and had no names. It's interesting with that one because it's, it's really the perfect name for that route. A couple years later, Hans Zach, a European photographer, gets some photos of you on that. And then that's really ultimately what causes Smith to, to blow up. And Yeah, that's kind of what... It really did become a chain reaction, right? Yeah, it, and it very much was. I mean, by, 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 by that time, I mean, after 83, 84, there was just a period of time where you just, I mean, things went from, I don't know, from at the start of 1979, the hardest route at Smith Rock was 11B. By 85, it was 13D. Hmm. which at that time was, you know, like when I did the East Face of Monkey Face. Well, Wolfgang Gulich, as it turns out, had done Punks in the Gym, 14A, mm -hmm. just a couple months before. Oh, wow. So that was, was that actually, close? yeah, Punks in the Gym was actually the hardest route. But when I did the... And is that in the Blue Mountains in Australia? So it's in Arapiles. Arapiles, okay. Yeah, I, I think so. Yeah. And um, I, I don't quote me on that. I'm not exactly sure, but it's a very famous route. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, that was the world standard at that point. Yeah, it was almost the Before hardest Before 85 was a 13D, 13CD. I mean, I grew up, Grand Illusion was always the hardest. That was the hardest route in the world. And, uh, you know, and then real quickly it shifted and there were started to be a whole lot of harder routes. But yeah, there was a time when... Uh, you know, when if you were climbing, getting close to five fourteen, that was that was the very highest level. Mm -hmm. By using the t the tactics we were using at Smith Rock, it, it went from where there were five elevens to all of a sudden it was like world standard. Yeah. And when Heinz showed up, I mean, I um, he was just kind of this guy. I, I was coming back up after a day of climbing. It was August, and Mike Volk, who I um, still lives at Smith Rock, and he always kind of had the place where everybody camped. He lives right next to Smith Rock, and he's like, Alan, there's this guy. He keeps asking for you, and I just felt I should warn you. He's up in the parking lot, and I was like, oh, God. <laughs> and this guy, he was just kind of this wild, his hair. He looked like he hadn't taken a shower in a month. I'm sure he hadn't. He was just this, you know, traveling and living in his car, and he was like, and I met him, and he's like, I, you know, he said, I've come from Austria. I've come from Austria to take pictures of you. I was like, uh... Okay. <laughs> but I talked with him long enough and I eventually realized, I mean, we started talking and, and I didn't even pay that much attention. To, he was just like this oddball guy, which I met occasionally, just people who were kind of into what was going on there. Yeah. But then he said, I, I was in, um, I just was in Australia and I was taking pictures of Wolfgang Gulich. Okay. And I was like, oh, Wolfgang. Because Wolfgang was always like the, yeah. the almighty, you know, <laughs> he, we knew he was out there. And it's like, huh. Wolfgang? You know Wolfgang? And I was like, I don't believe you know Wolfgang. And he's like, no, I know Wolfgang. And he showed me a t-shirt. He had a t-shirt that, that has Wolf, had this picture of Wolfgang on it from a, a shop in Germany. Oh, wow. Like, no, this is his shirt. And it's like, whoa, okay. So I agreed to spend a day taking, you know, pictures. It was like, let's meet at five in the morning or 530. And hmm. so we took the pictures of chain reaction and then split image on the other side and East face. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I was wearing his wolf, that Wolfgang shirt. Oh, no kidding. Yeah. I've never noticed that. Yeah. I'm wearing a yellow, at least on the cover, the mountain cover shot, I was wearing this yellow shirt. He thought it would just look, you know, good with my tights I was wearing. And uh -huh. so anyway, I didn't even think anything of it. We took the pictures. I was just kind of joking around with him. I said, 
he said, do you want to take the shirt? And I was like, no, I'll tell you what, Heinz, if you really know Wolfgang, here's what I want you to do. And it was just kind of my like sense of humor. I was just saying, you take the shirt, you take it back to Germany, you get Wolfgang to sign it <laughs> and you send it back to me. And I was just joking. Yeah. And then like four months later, back in Eugene and this package comes and it's a signed Wolfgang Gulich, his his shirt. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Along with the copy of Mountain Magazine that I was on the cover of. Wow. And so that just all of a sudden, and, and it changed things just from where Smith Rock was nothing to where the next time I went out there within just a couple months, it was, I'd go out there and I'd realize whoa, there's 50 climbers here, and I think I'm the only one speaking English. Wow. Yeah, just overnight. Massive shift. Yeah, it was crazy. Wow. So this video came out a few years ago that I really loved. It's called Pioneering Smith Rock, and it's a, a feature of, about you and your early days at Smith made by, I think, Hydro Flask? Yeah, this, um, <clears throat> the guy that did it was Matt Kleiner. He, okay. His, and he was working with... Hydro Flask, they, it's a local company, and yeah. they had kind of this They make program. water bottles and pint yeah. glasses and stuff and like that. and so I don't even know how that exactly came. I think it was actually Marsha Volk, Mike's wife, who had a connection with them. Okay. So, well, it's a great film, and there's a quote from you in that film that, I, that really caught my interest, and it was, you were talking, you were speaking about the summer of 1985, and you said, it was a time I would go back. If I could live a day, I sure would. So I, I'm curious, what would a day in 1985, summer of 85, what would that look like? <laughs> it was it was pretty simple. And in a lot of ways, it was not very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> I was just living in a, a tent. I had this big tent behind Mike Volk's property, like a walk-in tent. Okay. Yeah. And um, I think I had finished going to Central Oregon Community College, and I, I was kind of at a transition. And normally in the summer, I'd go back and live at home. But it was the first summer where it's like, no, I don't, I'm not, I'm just going to live in a tent. And so I just lived in a tent and I was kind of at the peak. I was probably at the peak of my climbing skills relative to the rest of the world. It was the time when I was, I was closest to, um, you know, when I was pushing 514, when 514 was still not quite out there, you know, or it was like, that was the the highest level. When did you do the first ascent of East Face Crack? Um, in 84... I did it, it was done in two pitches originally. Oh, okay. So in 83, I did the first pitch, which is like 12C. Yeah. And then I started working on the second pitch where you'd actually do it as a two-pitch climb. You'd do the first pitch, you'd have a hanging belay, you'd then do the upper pitch. Mm-hmm. And I did the upper pitch in 84, first yo-yo, and then I actually red-pointed it, putting in all the gear, mm-hmm. which was, at that point, that that doing that, doing just that pitch alone was harder than Grand Illusion. It just was, putting in the gear especially. And then the next year I came back and did the both pitches together, which adds a bit in the difficulty, but not, I don't think it adds a lot. Okay. So, yeah, 84 to 85. I mean, that's a long, that's a long route. If nothing else, that's a lot of rope weight. Yeah, it's a lot of, yeah, and we were using 11 millimeter ropes. Yeah. And back then when I was doing it, I wasn't pre-placing any gear. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've read countless times different places it's like oh it was done with pre-placed gear it, it never i never pre-placed a single net not ever ever huh. i never left a quick draw in place ever because you couldn't do that yeah that was not 
okay. But what I was dealing with was like having the rack, put in the gear, and then I would find that I, I would clip the quick draws and I wouldn't have enough strength to pull the rope up. So I started using these really long quick draws oh, so I wow. clip up and they'd hang down to my waist. And, uh-huh. But I, it was, I was, I don't know, I should have just left a few draws or that sort of thing. But I just had my little way of how I was doing things. So mm. anyway, I eventually did that. and Which isn't that. It's like a pe- pegged out, it's a pin scar crack. It's not, it's not what we, th- it's not a sport climb. It's a kind of a traditional climb. Is the crux more face moves, though? Well, you you climb this pin-scarred crack really steep, and then you have to do some face moves, and then you are, like, making this kind of this weird barn door move over to a jam that is another pin-scar. Okay. So it's, yeah, it's kind of just a blasted out. It's kind of like the end of the old era Mm -hmm. (laughs) rather than the new era. But we were... You know, we were all trad climbers. There were no, there were no sport climbers. We were all trad climbers. We were, I was a good trad climber. We were all good trad, Todd Skidder. He was a really good trad climber. Yeah. Because there was no other option. You could be Mm -hmm. a boulderer, but then you were a trad climber. You did cracks. Whether, even if you didn't use traditional tactics, you climbed, you climbed cracks. So there were no sport climbs. So we, you know. When I started doing sport climbs, I was a much better crack climber. I was mm. a really good crack climber. I was, it took me a long time to figure out. And I was a good boulderer. I mean, not like these days good, but I was climbing, I don't know, V10, V11, that yeah. sort of thing. I, w- I was decent back then. I was actually pretty good. Yeah. So I could do hard moves. I could, um, but to, to have the endurance on a sport climb, and it was just a, different thing to do like a to bolt or not to be where it's there's no move on it that's that hard but the combination is tremendously hard mm-hmm. so that kind of came came later but yeah. yeah so initially all the best climbs i did they were all crack climbs okay the hardest climbs the first 513 at smith rock was a crack climb i mean everything what was, was just that one? double stain oh yeah did you place all the gear on lead on that yeah that's interesting i haven't tried it yet but i've i have this impression that it's either really dangerous or really unrealistic to place some of the gear because it's blind or reachy. Or yeah, something. there was a section I don't remember. It's again, it's a pin scar crack. It's like this old school thing. But I, I remember there's this one place where you would put, you would put a piece in, like a RP, which I don't even think that company exists anymore. They were the first. We still call them that. Brass nuts. Yeah. You know, I think a number three. And, but it was very hard to put that piece in. And I would find that I couldn't put that piece in and continue. I'd always fall off. So eventually I figured out that you'd put the piece in and then you'd down climb. Oh. But it was still fairly hard getting up there. Yeah. I found that I had a sequence to put the piece in and then I had a different sequence to use to climb down. Oh, wow. And it, I even fell off a couple times. Trying to down climb. Yeah. On the down climb. Yeah. But eventually you down climb all the way, then you could just sit and you'd rest and then you could... All the way to the ground? That climb starts on uh, the top of combination blocks. Oh, okay. Yeah. So you're, yeah. you're just sitting on a big ledge. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So that's, again, that's just the way you did things back then. Hmm. And then ultimately you'd go on to climb to bolt or not to be, you bolted that, that route. Um, JB Trebeau does the first ascent. When was that, in 87? Uh, November of 86 is when he did it. Okay. And I started, I was preparing that route, I think, two years before. I think in November of 
84. Okay. And I had a journal back then where I actually kept track of everything I was doing. And, and I was surprised. I looked at that a couple years ago and I, I, I spent seven days where it'd be like each day I'd list what I would do and it would, uh, you know, repel of sunshine wall and then repel sunshine wall. And there were seven days where I started, I was cleaning it and kind of figuring out where the route would go. Mm. I mean, now it seems That makes obvious. sense. It's, well, yeah, it's but you're it like pulling off it, these flakes and it seemed impossible. And, yeah. And you started creating It's all side thing. poles and underclings and... Yeah. And it really, that route really wanders back and forth across that wa- whole wall. Yeah. And really when I first wrapped down it, it was like just a lot of loose flakes. Just wow. Just flakes. And so I just pulled off all these little flakes and I, you piece together this thing. And then I, and after I think seven days, I have an entry where I said, sunshine wall top rope did all the moves okay so i you know at least it, i knew it was maybe possible mm-hmm. but did, did uh, you start working on it at that point well or? i i kind of did but it was i just it was that was just too much i mean that was early 84 i mean that if, if i had done it that that was that was it would have been the hardest route in the world yeah by far that yeah. would have and so it just we i just we weren't quite ready and i was a I was a better crack climber. I was a mm. much better crack climber and I just wasn't good enough. And the footwear wasn't very good back then. The shoes we were wearing sucked. And so I just, I mean, I tried it some and it was always something I thought that maybe would be out there. And I actually split it up into two sections. I started working on the upper half of it where you okay. climb up Sunshine Dehedral and then you'd clip You'd, you'd step left. Yeah, the French connection. The French connection. 13B. Yeah. Yeah. But when I was doing it, at that point I was, I knew as I started to get better and climb more, I was aware of the criticism I was receiving mm-hmm. from the style that I was doing. And that, you know, putting bolts in a rappel, hang dogging, it's like anybody can do that. That's nothing. That's cheating. Hmm. And so I started to, for two reasons. One, I started putting in fewer bolts, partly because Everything was hand drilled. Right. And and I only had like one or two bits back then. And I didn't I just didn't even know how to sharpen them or if I could or I just so I, I'd put in like a hundred bolts with one bit and it would just it would take an hour per hole. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was horrible trying to hand drill the stuff. And so if I could put in fewer bolts by using natural gear or just being a little bit bold, I'd put in fewer bolts because it would save me a lot of work. Mm-hmm. And so when I first started working on French Connection, you'd step over, clip what is now the ninth bolt of to bolt or not to be, but the 10th bolt wasn't there. (laughs) (laughs) And the 14th bolt wasn't there. Okay. So you'd have to do, I mean, you'd be like, the the rope would just like snake down below your feet. And, you know, it'd be like 20 feet down below where the bolt was. Yeah. And it was just really hard to get myself up for trying this thing. Yeah. That was, you know, as hard of a face climb as I could do. Yeah. At that point, 13B or something where the, where you were taking 40, 40 footers, 40 plus footers. Yeah. That's not exactly like vacation bolted now, even with those extra bolts, it's still kind of run out. (laughs) Well, yeah. Like, yeah, it's, it definitely is. And so in 86, when Jean-Baptiste did it, he... He real quickly just looked at it. It's like, oh, you need a bolt there and you need a bolt there. And so he added mm. the bolts and he looked at it more from a European, like not looking at it from a U.S. standpoint of where you were under tremendous criticism for doing this. Got it. It's like, no, it doesn't, it's silly. It's just put the bolts in. Uh-huh. 
you know. So anyway, that's, yeah, he, he did that in 86. I'd met him in, um, at a climbing competition in, uh, in the Pyrenees. Okay. And people knew at that point what Smith Rock was from the magazines and the articles, and they knew who I was because of those articles. And I met him, and I was saying, yeah, you should come Smith Rock. And he's like, oh, he said, I've already got tickets. <laughs> I've already bought a ticket to, you know, my friend and my girlfriend were coming to yeah, the month of October. Oh, wow. And he was the first, he was the first one ever to buy the round trip Paris to Redmond, Oregon, to back to Paris round trip. Oh, that was his wow. trip. He didn't go anywhere else. Oh, man. Yeah. And so anyway, he came to Smith Rock, did the routes and that kind of changed everything. It legitimized what I was doing, but it also took it up a notch. And hmm. for me, it was great because you could criticize what I was doing. But once this other, this guy shows up from Europe and does something that is just, there's a big difference between to bolt or not to be and some of the other, you know, darkness at noon, for instance, mm -hmm. there's a huge difference. And it became really hard for people to argue with to bolt or not to be. Got it. Look at this style. Look at the way of doing it. This is what happens. If you hang dog, you bolt on repel, this is possible. Hmm. If you are no hang dogging lower into the ground, yeah, you guys, you can be doing 13A or 13B or whatever. And But if you really want to be doing the best, the hardest stuff, either this way or just you're getting left behind. Hmm. And that's the whole reason for his name to bolt or not to be. Either you bolt it or it's not even... Hmm. You step into the future or you're left behind. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the way it was. That was the turning point. So 1985, you've done the first ascent of eSpace Crack, and arguably you're one of the best climbers in the country at the time. In my mind, you're one of the best climbers in the world at the time. And it's my, my understanding, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but you were climbing five days a week. That was working really well for you. So you thought, oh, what if I climb six days a week? What if I climb seven days a week? Eventually, you're climbing every day, getting really strong. Jeff Smoot, in his book, he, he talks about when he was meeting you, uh, you were popping ibuprofen like candy and already having some arthritis and issues with your hands. And I have a quote from you. You said, I, I basically destroyed myself. Yeah, it's accurate. When we were, we went to lunch a few weeks ago in preparation for doing this, and you said something really interesting. You said, it was like, I found the goose that laid the golden eggs and I killed the goose. That's exactly <laughs> what I did. Yeah. It was, um, I don't know. It was stupid of me, but then again, I look back and it was, um, it was just my path. It was just what I kind of needed to do. It, it's, it's kind of like I, if I wouldn't have been as consumed with what I did, if I would have been slower paced and done those same things three or four years later, it wouldn't have mattered because it would have happened elsewhere. Hmm. It was like, it was just this opportunity and I saw it and I seized it and nobody was ever telling me, slow down. Hmm. I was obsessive, tremendously obsessive. I mean, kind of, you know, borderline mental health, sort of like OCD, you know, just simply, this is my goal. This is my vision. I must, I must do it. I must mm -hmm. do whatever I have to do. It's all that existed. My world was super simple. <laughs> So, yeah, I just, uh, that's totally right. I started climbing four days a week and five days a week and six days a week and and then training and bouldering. And, and the start of 85, I mean, 
84 had been tremendously successful. I mean, in two years, I'd gone from like doing the first sport climb to, to like pushing 514. It was like, I felt like I was on top of the world, yeah. tremendously confident. And so what am I going to do in 85? I'm, hey, let's climb every day. Hmm. Let's do 365 days. Let's do every day. Climb every day. <laughs> Did you? Well, I made it about halfway. Okay. Yeah. And I had a period of time when I was super strong. I was, I probably did the hardest boulder problems I've ever done. And I, my, I was, I mean, my fingers were strong. I was even probably fairly strong by today's standards. Yeah. But then I started not being so strong. I started feeling like, uh, I'm just kind of feeling a little weak today hmm. after maybe day 60. <laughs> and then after day 90, I was... It was more of a problem. And once I hit day 125, it was, um, okay, well, eventually I realized this isn't going to work. I need to take one day off. <laughs> so I took a day off <laughs> and then I wasn't any better. I wasn't any stronger. And, you know, I did come back and I actually did my hardest climbing after that, but you can't do that. You can't climb. It doesn't matter what you're doing. If you're a runner, if you're whatever, if you push your body and you rest your body. And when mm -hmm. you're resting, your body grows stronger. It, it, it you damage your body mm -hmm. and it is in the rest period that your body then grows stronger. Yeah. And I ignored that when my body wanted to grow stronger, I was back out mm. climbing, crimping stuff, pin scars, little one finger jams, horrible torquing things. And I, I mean, in, in 1985, I, in a lot of ways, did some of my best climbing, but I kind of sealed my fate for the future. It was, hmm. I never, I never recovered. Even though I did harder routes, I did 514 in 1988 and 89, and um, I never recovered. And I hmm. still, it doesn't matter. I still have the same issues, the exact same issues that took me out then. I still have them. Oh, I go wow. to the gym. I have joints that will become inflamed. They'll become red. They're just, they feel like they're infected. I mean, it's, I have like this, I, it's accurate. I destroyed myself. It's, it's too bad that I did that. I wish I wouldn't have. I should have had a longer uh, career, mm. but um, again, I, I, I'm not, you know, I'm not complaining with just the way it went for me. It was just, that was my path. Yeah. It's really interesting to hear you say that. I mean, you seem really self-actualized and you've seen that, you know, you've seen what happened from that path and, and how much of an impact you've had. Um, obviously at the same time, it's still tragic. It's still a, a hard story. So I'm curious, would you, would you take it back? Would you do anything differently? Yeah, I think I would. Yeah. I think I would rest occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> I think I would take a day off. I think occasionally I would just take a day off. There was no benefit. It wasn't like, I mean, it was just the way it was. And in some ways for me at this point to say, poor me, oh, it's really too bad what happened to me. My fingers went and, you know, and, and I couldn't climb harder. I had a short career or I am so grateful, like just unbelievably, wonderfully grateful for every ex experience I had. I mean, I got to, I was a kid. I had like these dreams of wanting to be a climber and what happened to me was beyond what I ever would imagine. And the fact mm -hmm. that we're here years later, decades later, I mean, people, it's still, it will follow me my whole life. I mean, when I'm finally gone, 
you know, that's what my obituary is going to say. It's definitely <laughs> going to mention Alan Watts, rock climber, Smith Rock. And <laughs> yeah. um, it was the best thing I ever did. Hmm. And so it uh, would be really petty of me to look at it and complain. But yeah, I mean, I made, I made mistakes, but um, so what? I mean, I, did, I didn't know better. Hmm. Certainly what I was doing with sport climbing kind of inspired other people in the U.S. to do that push, you know, like a Boone Speed, for instance, going to American Fork and doing what he did. And mm. Just, it it was kind of the beginning. But it also, I hope that uh, people knew my story and were kind of smarter than I was. <laughs> and you, everybody, climbers tend to be pretty obsessive. Uh, it's yeah. not unusual. It's not, you have something, you have a goal, you want to do it. And it's really hard to understand that the best thing to do to achieve your goal is occasionally to do nothing. Mm. Climbers benefited from, uh, in this country, from realizing, okay, well, I don't want to take a rest day, but I should take a rest day because mm. I don't want to have fingers that are swollen and red and puffy looking like Alan's. <laughs> you described that when you go to the climbing gym now, the day after, all your wrinkles on your hands are gone because your fingers yeah. are so swollen. And it's still... That way, I've I've tried. Didn't matter losing weight. It didn't doesn't matter if I train. It's it's the pattern. It always is that way. I just simply I'll feel really strong if I start doing too much. If I don't give myself enough recovery time, and I need massive recovery now, um, it's just what happens. I just notice that they are puffy and they're red and they just you know I don't know it's arthritis or whatever it is, but I yeah I, I have limitations. Mm -hmm. But I also, if I am smart, it used to be when it first happened, it was like, okay, it's over. I can't climb anymore. It's done. And I certainly couldn't push the standards, but as it turns out, I can be a really pretty decent two day a week climber. Mm. That's what I am. I can't be more than that. Mm -hmm. I was listening to a podcast that that Bill Ramsey did, and he, he was talking about his training and Bill's like, well, he's my exact age to the day. And he he um, was talking about how with his training, he has these massive training days. Yeah. And for him, it's it's not that less is more. He said more is more. <laughs> and I mean, Bill's a whole different, you know, thing, a whole different uh, creature than I am. But, um, but it's really true. I can have a day where I train, I climb, I can do a lot, but then I need several days, probably three days mm. of complete rest, at least with my fingers, I can do other things, but, and then I can have another really massive day of climbing, training, whatever. Oh, interesting. If I try to go more than that, I break down. I just do. I always do. That's just all I can sustain. And you've tried more frequent, but much shorter days? Like There's nothing else works. I've tried yeah. it for years. Okay. I that's, mean, when I... Yeah, that's interesting. When I started breaking down, I tried everything. I mean, it was, it was horrendous for me. It was, it was really a very bad time for me in my life because I I had found what I wanted to be. It had worked out. Hmm. I don't know. It's like we all want to be, you know, we're climbers and climbing is important to us and we want to do our routes. And then I, it was just kind of coincidentally that I, you know, climbed, you did my routes. And then also it was kind of started this whole different movement and this whole different part of segment of climbing. And that wasn't what I set out to do is wonderful and it's it's been pretty cool but um you know that wasn't what i set out to do but once i um 
once it was obvious it was working, people started showing up. Smith Rock was like this internationally known area. I was already on the decline. I was already injured. I mm. was, and it got worse really quickly. And so for me, it was like, okay, great. I just achieved everything I ever dreamed of, more than I ever dreamed of, and now I can't participate. Mm. And that was really disorienting and kind of horrible for me. Yeah. So it took a very long time. You mentioned how I might seem self-actualized now. Well, I sure wasn't. That was a lot of angst and a lot of years when I was tormented. Mm-hmm. And I've only kind of in recent years kind of come to where I am satisfied and accepting of what my path was. Mm-hmm. So I would love to talk to you about Adam Andre and his visit here. So after your, you, you just talked about your decline, how as, as soon as Smith Rock really took off and all these international climbers started showing interest and it starts blowing up against your will, you're kind of pulled away from it and forced out of it. And uh, my understanding is that you, you took a pretty significant step back from climbing for a long time. And then only just recently you became interested in, in kind of what was happening with the climbing scene again. You discover Adamandra and then, sh- you know, sure enough, he's on his way to Smith Rock. Tell me about how climbing kind of came back onto your radar and maybe how you came across Adamandra. And then you had a great story about him uh, visiting here and and you going out and meeting him once he was here. Yeah, once I, I don't know, by the early 90s, I was in my early 30s, I was having major issues with my fingers. They just weren't working. The first joint, the joint closest to my the tips. Mm-hmm. I forget what it's called. Uh, a dip joint or I, Yeah, I can't remember if it's the PIP joint or it the It might DIP. be a pip or a dip. I, I don't know. But I would just, they, they, you know, sharp, excruciating, like almost an electrical like pain where mm. I, would, I would be climbing and it, you couldn't force yourself to hang on. It just, it didn't work. And at that point I was gotten married. My son was born in 1993. The same week my son was born, I took over as president of Entreprise USA. Which oh, I didn't know that. company that I had founded along with Chris Grover. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you know that I worked there when I first moved? No, there? I didn't know. <laughs> I worked there for a year and a half. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I managed their whole climbing hold production. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you'd think they would have put a statue up of me or Chris, but we didn't. Yeah, we, they haven't done that. So I don't think there were that many climbers there when I worked there. I was kind of disoriented. Yeah, it's like, kind of... A, isn't this a climbing company? It's kind of a funny thing. But so anyway, you know, between everything I'd done in climbing, having a son working in the industry, being burnt out. I was just done. And I also was kind of done from the, um, I didn't like the whole battle between sport climbers and traditional climbers. And Mm. it took a toll on me. It just wasn't fun. I didn't like it. I like to get along with people. I don't like conflict. I hate conflict. And so suddenly I was just found myself in this position where I was always just the the new person who was pushing against tradition. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know, it just, it, it stopped being fun mm-hmm. for a variety of reasons, partly because it hurt and I just couldn't do it, but also it just, after five years or six years or eight years, I didn't want to argue with people, you know, like, hey, you know, you, you, you sport climbers, you, that's not, sport climbing's not climbing. And, you know, it's like, yeah, whatever. Okay. I just, I'm done. I don't want to hear that argument anymore. I'm just done. And so, yeah, I, when I quit, I really quit. And 
especially in the uh, 2000s. My son was a, a competitive snowboarder, and I, I was following him around the world, and, and I didn't need it. it was, I was glad I lived those years, but they were done. Mm -hmm. I went, I don't know, 15 years, I never picked up a climbing magazine. Hmm. Occasionally, somebody would say, hey, there's an article, you're in it, you should, you know, and I'd get it, and I'd put it in my box of stuff, and I, but I just, I just didn't care. I wasn't interested in it, and, and I don't know, it was... Um, I, I've always stayed in touch with, with Bill Ramsey, who, you know, just kept on, he just kept on getting better. As a, he was getting better, I just was declining. <laughs> and so, but we, he would come here and he'd, um, every once in a while, we'd go out to eat and have a few beers and he would just be talking about all this stuff. And I'm sure, you know, what was going on. And I'm sure that's where I heard of Adam Andre. Mm. It wasn't from the magazines or wasn't anything I searched online. I, okay. I'm sure the first time Bill mentioned his name, I was like, who? He's like, he's the best climber in the world. Who is he? <laughs> you know, this guy from the Czech Republic. And it was the same time when I was starting to do the alternate day fasting thing and I was losing weight and I was starting to think, you know, my kids were older. And it's like, you know, I miss it. I miss climbing and hmm. I, I want to get back into it. And so I found myself starting to pay attention and go on the internet and look at things. And I went to some real rock. I went to a real rock movie for the yeah. first time. And it's like, wow. I mean, not just enjoying the movie, but more than anything else, just being amazed that I'm sitting in a theater of people filled with climbers all wanting to see a climbing movie. <laughs> oh, were, yeah. Yeah. Of course. In the, you know, 19, early 80s, if they would have had a movie for a climbing movie, there would have been 15 of us showing up to see it because that's all the only, those were the only people that climbed. Yeah. So oh, it was, fascinating. So I kind of just, it was kind of cool to just be away for 15 years, like hmm. completely away. Like just, you couldn't get further removed from it. And I, I hardly ever thought about it. And then just... All of a sudden, back into it, like this is the new world and kind of educating myself. And it's hmm. like, it was, um, yeah, it was kind of fascinating. And I mean, of course, Adam is, you can't, if you pay attention to climbing real quickly, you know, Adam Andre. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't until um, I had my hip replaced, October 1st, 2018. I had a hip that was going bad, my right hip. And... I was getting to where I was just having things that were going wrong with my body. Mm. Like I'd had, I started trying to get it back in shape after I lost all the weight in 2013. I was a, back in the 140, you know, 148 pounds and ready to be a climber again. And then I tore my rotator cuff. Oh. And a year later I had surgery. And then a year later, it took a year before I could start climbing. And, and then as I started climbing again, then I noticed, gosh, my hip is hurting. And real quickly, it was like, I can't really walk and I can't sleep. And so I had to have my, had my hip replaced. I actually had it resurfaced. I had it done in Seattle. So, but it was kind of a major thing. And, but at that point, I was kind of following what was going on in climbing. And somehow I had heard that Adam Andre was in the U.S. and that he might be coming to Smith Rock. Yeah. And so it, would be, it had been like three weeks after my hip surgery. And I was just shuffling around the house with using my walker and just suffering, feeling like life was over. And I started just Googling Adam Andre. And it was a Facebook, a public Facebook page. And I just started looking to see, I wonder if he's really coming to Smith Rock. And, and maybe a week later... 
And again, at that point, I had just, I had graduated from my walker to walking poles, but I had <laughs> done nothing more than walk around the block uh-huh. at my house. And, um, and one morning I woke up and I Googled his name and came up and there was a picture of him like sitting out in the trees. And it's like, whoa, that looks like Mount Jefferson behind him. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God, he's here. So I just, I grabbed my walking sticks, drive to Smith Rock, and I went down down to the dehedrals and just in search of Adam. And um, <laughs> which for me, it was epic just walking down there because I, I just, it's the first time I'd ever again had done more than walking around the block and but i figured you know this is if he's coming to smith rock it's worth it to meet this guy Hmm. and i am not somebody ever who will go up to somebody and i don't want to introduce myself or want to be like i i dreaded having to say um hello adam my name is alan watts perhaps you've heard of me Uh, i just didn't want to do that except it was adam freaking andre you had to it was either this i either meet the guy or i don't yeah so that's exactly what i did i was like hello uh adam uh my name is alan watts and i did some early development here at smith rock and i just wanted to say welcome to this place and we will you know anything we can do for you to make Hmm. your stay more pleasant (laughs) you know that sort of thing but but he was like oh well i know you you know and 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 we just hit it off and and um so we spent three days just i followed him around shuffling around as well as i could and later on that, you know, he had tried, he tried to do to Boulder not to be on site and he fell off and, and he did Scarface on site and White Wedding on site. And it was just bad, man. And yeah. And then well, the day he did just do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He hiked up the gully. He did bad man on site as a warm up. Yeah. That was just his warm up. And he climbed both the cruxes backwards. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. And, <laughs> and then he called it soft. <laughs> yeah. And he was, um. And it was a cold day. It was just windy. It, yeah, and, and it was. It's like, man, I just didn't think there's any way he was going to try that hmm. thing on that day. I just do it. And It but, was freezing back there. Yeah. I, I was so fortunate to be back there. And yeah, it was freezing in the shade, super windy. I felt the same thing. I was like, I, I couldn't even climb a warm-up right now. I don't know how he's going for it. Yeah, so I, I, you know, I just met the guy. And then there was like this, my daughter was like, look at this post. And it was like... Because I'm not on social media. Yeah. And he, he actually posted this thing, which is like, at Smith Rock and met Alan Watts. And it was such an honor. And it's like, what the hell? <laughs> and I mean, I, I it, it, it really meant a lot to me, especially because I was just at this point where I was recovering from this surgery. Mm. And I just felt really out of it. And like, you know, I don't know if I'll ever come back to do anything, you know, hiking, let alone climbing. And... But just to suddenly just be transported to the absolute best of the best and and realize he's just like me. He's just a kid who's, you know, he was just uh, psyched on climbing. He's yeah. just like, that's, it's like 30 years later, 35 years later, he's just who I was just, you know, at Smith Rock, just somebody who was just in love with climbing. Hmm. And I watched him on, on Just Do It and I... I mean, I was rooting for him for sure, and um, but I didn't think he was going to do it. There's mm-hmm. no way because it's just, I mean, it's just do it. And the best descent had taken like four days. Yeah, and it was cold. It was windy. It was all you need. You know, the lower parts really hard, and there's a really hard move. And yeah, it's, it's really all tricky. you have to do is have your foot pop or 
you know, and then he, he just kept going and, you know, made it through the lower part and he was stopping, you know, shaking at the midway rest. And it's like, whoa, this is interesting. <laughs> and just watching him, he just kept going, just ah, ah, every move. <laughs> and I just, I don't know. It was like the most, inf you know, 45 years of being a climber is the most amazing thing I'd ever seen. Hmm. And partly because I'd been away for so long to just see like what climbing had become. Hmm. It just blew me away. And by the time he finally clipped the chains, I mean, I was like, just, it was like a sporting event. Yes. You know, it was like, where it was like, it was just like a sporting event where, you know, somebody makes the last second shot to win the game in the uh -huh. basketball game. And that's the way you hear people screaming all around. There were all these people watching. You were, I guess you were there. So yeah. you were one of them. Yeah, yeah. One of the people screaming there. And it was, and I was like, just, I was like in tears. I was like, <laughs> you know, I was, it was just, I was blown away. And, um, and then he had his film crew there and his, mm -hmm. you know, they were doing all their things and the guy was filming me and asking me questions and and then there, he posted something like on he has these whole videos it was like the start of his road to tokyo series and, mm -hmm. which i you know that was like some of the first ones and yeah he had like a whole america road trip yeah, series. yeah right and i watched the videos and i looked at comments and there was somebody who said like oh alan watts looks like he's in tears or he was really kind of upset that adam did his route <laughs> it's like are you kidding me it's just i'm i was just no inspired. you looked you looked inspired and shell-shocked and yeah. just like amazed and, just, and it was amazing again just grateful because i had just mm. seen you know i was 15 years old climbing monkey face for the first time and i i'd seen what everything that climbing had gone through and my life had gone through and what the sport had gone through. And it was just to see it. I mean, I recognized, I mean, I bolted that route in 1989 and it mm -hmm. was like, even though I could, I mean, what he was doing was so far beyond what I could even imagine. There was still this realization that, that I was part of what he was doing, mm. you know, and that I, what I had done back in the eighties somehow through this coincidence, this butterfly effect led to this guy showing up and doing what he was doing. And it was just, it, for me, it was just kind of overwhelming. Yeah. So you have a quote yeah. from that. You said, uh, during that ascent, it's just like you watch your whole life. Yeah. And I still kind of get choked up even talking about that because it's more than just watching this guy do a hard route. Mm -hmm. Cause I kind of relived the whole process of just everything from, you know, bolting on repel and hang dogging and well you're cheating and and just everything that kind of led to all of a sudden where you have the you know the end result of that is is people that are just unimaginably good hmm. so i i really hit it off with adam it was fun and we just it was fun i he's just he was like my son he's like <laughs> he's the same age as my son mm -hmm. and again the fact that he put me in his videos or put me in his book or whatever it was. Yeah. So you just grateful. Like what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know you expressed this to me. We, we were at lunch a few weeks ago and you showed me this Instagram post. And after he left, you had uh, kind of stumbled onto this. Adam just came out with a photo book and you were looking at that on his Instagram post. And all of a sudden, you know, he's flipping through the book on this video and there you are. And yeah. He, <laughs> and again, which you just, and it, I saw that and, I, I was kind of amazed, like, 
why would I make the cut? How would I make it into his book? And then I started looking like, how can I get a copy? I want to get a copy of the book. Yeah. And it wasn't available in the US. And as it turns out, my wife was looking for a copy because I had told her about it and she oh, was looking cool. at a copy for Christmas. And we both just kind of struck out uh -huh. and it's like, oh, well, you know, no big deal. And then like a few days later, I get an email from Adam... Andre's team manager saying, Hey, Adam really wants to get you a copy of his book. No kidding. Yeah. Oh my so God. The address, you know, sends me the book and I don't know. It's again, it's just things like that that are just, um, grateful gratitude. Mm. That's my thing. If I look back at my years of climbing, that's it. It's just, yeah, it's, it's the best, the best thing. So that ever happened to me. Hmm. It was really interesting in that video series to watch you kind of hanging out with Adam and, and beyond just do it, going on and trying the all project. We were talking about that. So Adam was trying a project on a feature called the all, A-W-L, and you had bolted this line back in... I think 1990. 1990. And it's, I mean, Adam was thinking it's going to be 14D, but he didn't do it despite... 10 tries or something in a day with really good conditions. So it might even be harder. It was fascinating to hear your perspective. You were telling me about being out there that day and watching him do this. And there was this moment where he realized that he wasn't going to be able to pull it off. Yeah, the sun, day. it was, the thing was in the shade. The uh -huh. conditions were perfect. And then his, he, I mean, he had just done, you know, the day before he had just on-sided bad man, just do it. And, uh, spank the monkey you know and you know he oh was, did he do that as well he actually fell off of the full full spank okay his foot just i mean he was totally in control he was right up at the top and his foot was in a pocket and he was reaching up and his foot just popped oh so, man yeah so i mean that for him was i don't think 13d was that yeah that hard he just did it like half an hour after lowering off of just do it uh -huh. but then the next day he's trying this project because i told him about it mm -hmm. and um his skin wasn't good. He was tired, but still, I mean, he's Adam Andre and, um, he was working on it and kept trying. He was really close. Like, okay, he'll do this. And then you started to see, he kept falling off on the same move over and over. And the sun was coming over. His skin was bad and it was getting a little warm. And you, you know, there got to be a point where it's like, he's not going to do it. Hmm. And he realized that and the, he had one attempt where he was up there fell off on the, the last hard move and he's just this really mild mannered super nice unassuming person and all of a sudden he was just like ah, i do not want to fail <sighs> and just you could just tensing all of his muscles and then he just returned to his nice person that he was just this real calm oh well you know i'll come back and but you just the intensity you saw hmm. the intensity of what makes him who he is hmm. so Again, good memory. That's fascinating. I, I'm really fascinated that you bolted that in 1990. I mean, there's a there's a quote from Adam, I think in that same video, and he's talking about just how brave you were for bolting that when you did. And there's also, there's an open project, I believe on the left of Scarface on that sweeping overhanging wall. And it's a beautiful feature, but you know, Adam's just guessing. I don't think he tried it, but he's like, yeah, this thing's going to be 515, maybe 515 plus. It's fascinating to me. I would love to know, what was it 
that led you to bolt those things? Were you just the optimist? Did you just want to see for yourself and think you might have a chance of climbing these things? Did you have any sense of how futuristic those climbs might be? Well, I mean, if you look back and put it into context, in 1979, when I was 18 years old, the hardest rat at Smith Rock was like 5'11A, maybe B. Move ahead seven years, and the hardest rat at Smith Rock is 5'14A. So what's that? That's like, you know, it's hard to do the math, but it's like, what, 12, 13, 14 grades? And so <laughs> sure. it's um, it's really easy to, you know, we've had that success. And so once you went from 5'11 to 5'14 and anything seemed possible. Hmm. There was no reason to think that 5, uh, you know, 5.14 had arrived. 5.15 was going to be coming real soon. 5.16, no doubt. 5.17, 5.18, it was all coming. And huh. we were kind of wrong. We were overly <laughs> optimistic. But there was this belief that you bolt it. And by the time I did the All Project and when I bolted Just Do It in 1989, I was beginning to realize I I wasn't the one that was going to be doing these routes. Hmm. But I still thought maybe I could, but I was starting to break down. I was having my issues with my fingers. I don't think I would have bolted just do it, for instance, if I I didn't bolt it thinking, oh, well, this would be a really nice service for me to bolt this so that Jean-Baptiste Trebou can show up in 1992 and do it. Yeah. It was, no, I bolted it because I wanted to do it. Yeah. I actually bolted that for a TV show that we were Oh, okay. Huh. Um, yeah. It was on NBC Sports World, and they wanted to do a show on um, doing the hardest route at Smith Rock. And okay. So it was a program where Wolfgang Gulich, Ron Kalk, and I teamed together to do this route. Oh, no way. Yeah. And I, my job was to pick the route and to bolt the route and prepare it. So then we'd show up. You nailed it. You we'd do the first step. So I bolted. Yeah, I bolted. Just do it. <laughs> uh-huh. And then the day before Wolfgang flew in, Calc and I tried it. Uh-huh. And <laughs> we had like two days to climb. Once the film crew showed up, we had two days to climb the thing. And real quickly, we realized, oops, <laughs> this isn't going to work. We're not going to... Because in 1989, 14C, that, that was... There's nothing... Again, it was harder than anything that had been done. And um, so we, we ended up changing our plans and doing something else. And again, it was a good memory climbing with those guys. And um, I just was looking at different routes and that, that thing on the all. It's, it wasn't a, it's just this short little thing, but mm -hmm. I wasn't the only one. Scott Franklin was the one that bolted the thing left of Scarface. Oh, really? Yeah, it wasn't okay. me. And, um, yeah, there was just this belief that, again, if you think about it, when we've gone from 5.11 to 5.14, or even in just in the U.S. from like 5.13 up into 5.14, well, 5.15 was obviously coming, mm. and there was a lot of excitement. And, hmm. yeah, so total belief that those things would be done soon. Hmm. So when I bolted that thing on the all, it was not... I wasn't bolting it for Adam Andre to try 30 years later. Uh -huh. I was bolting it for, hopefully, I'd be able to do it in a year or two. Or if not, somebody would do it in wow. the next few years. And then they just, it just sat. It was just abandoned. And, yeah. And I'm glad. I mean, I guess what's cool, looking back, is that I saw it, could feel the holds, and decided, this will go. Hmm. And not 
chopping the holds, mm-hmm. chipping it to to where because it would have been really easy to chip the thing down to 13C. Yeah, you know, and or 14A or whatever, and have it be done. But it uh-huh. was like you could just kind of see that this would this would go. Huh. So yeah, it's still not done. It's still sitting there. I'm waiting for. <laughs> Adam said he was. Um, you know, when I thanked him for sending the book, he sent me back an email saying, yeah, I still need to go to Smith Rock and I'll come back. I still want to do that project. He's and, one of those guys, you know, that's, that's in there. Yeah. That's in the, in his mind. Yeah. Cause for him, that's not, yeah, it's not a very hard thing. I know Drew's been trying it quite a bit too. He had tried Drew it. And, yeah. I mean, it would be, it would be nice if, if Smith Rock had a 515. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's kind of a little surprising that. Just Do It was done in 92, mm-hmm. and Drew did The Assassin whenever, I don't know when that was, if maybe three, 2016 yeah, or 17. Yeah, four years ago. Yeah, at 514D, yeah. and that's the hardest route at Smith. So we went from 511 in 79 to 14C in 92, that's mm-hmm. 13 years, and in the next 20 years, 28 years since then, it's gone up one notch. Yeah. So, and we, it's getting harder to raise the standards, but worldwide, 15, 515A is not, Hmm. there's a lot of people that have done that. It's not, Mm -hmm. I can't imagine it, but it's like, it's not that hard of a grade. So it'd be really nice if there was a 515 at Smith Rock. Hmm. Yeah. It must be interesting to come back into, to rock climbing after so long away. And I'm sure on one hand, you're amazed at where things are now, but were you also surprised that things hadn't come further in the in the years that you'd been away from the sport? Um, overall, worldwide, no. Okay. <laughs> blown away how far things have come. Okay. At Smith Rock, yeah. Got I was it. Kind of surprised because, yeah. um, and I still am. I'm still I'm still surprised that again, if you think about that in in 13 years, it goes from 511A to 14C, mm-hmm. and then in 28 years. It hmm. goes from 14C to 14D. So, y- yeah, that's a little surprising and maybe a little disappointing that right. it wouldn't go higher. But people, it's not like every, it's, people don't care about that. It's like, you know, the the best climbers are on the World Cup and, you know, they're, they're trying to make the, they're on the Olympic path or, you know, they're going to Europe and doing the best U.S. climbers. And nobody's thinking, oh, well, I, I want to go to Smith Rock and... Uh, <laughs> Push standards. Push standards there. Those days are, are done. Hmm. It had its time, and those days are are done. It's more of a historical, a place with a lot of history rather than a place that's re- relevant now. Mm-hmm. I, You know, that's just the way things go. But still, it will be another point, another time that I'm looking forward to is when there is that jump forward in grades. That will be cool when that happens. Hmm. You've talked about your visualization. You said that you used to visualize before that was what you were supposed to do. So tell me about how you used visualization when you were project. Well, it, it just kind of made sense. It wasn't, again, a lot of the stuff sport climbing really became was just using every tactic available to get better, to uh-huh. improve, to get to do your route. And so I would, when I started working on routes that were too hard for me to do quickly... I would memorize the moves and I'd go home and at night I would draw a very detailed map of every hand placement and every, the whole sequence. I had a whole map thing that I've I've just diagrammed countless routes that way. Mm -hmm. And I got pretty good at memorizing things because that's, it's 
really important very quickly once you, if you're going to do a hard route, you can't be stumbling through the lower part below the crux inefficiently, uh, doing the wrong sequence and doing something different every time. It helps just to remember it so you remember the moves. And once you remember the moves, then I would think about it and it's like, okay, I remember this sequence and you just start working through it. And quickly that kind of evolved to where I'd find myself laying down on my floor and doing every move of no kidding to bolt or not to be or yeah. Scarface. And I would just imagine or any new route I was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly before I was doing those routes, I was, that's, that's what I was doing. I would just visualize exactly everything, every little detail. Were you, you pantomiming know? the movements as well while you were doing this? The movements, but everything. Like okay. The, the sounds, the, the temperature, the no light. The, yeah. Every, the more detail, the better. Yeah. And how you were so, feeling, how you're breathing. The yeah. So I would forms. try a route and I'd get it kind of memorized. And it's like, this is incredibly hard. And then I would try to visualize it and I'd lay down on the floor. And it's like, okay, here I am going this move, you know, boom, 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 going through the sequence. Mm-hmm. And it was funny because there'd be routes that would be, I wouldn't quite be ready to do. And I would find that as I was visualizing it, visualizing it, I kept falling off. <laughs> It's like, damn, you know, I'm just, but it's like, you're just in your mind, but still in my mind, I couldn't grasp doing it yet. Uh And then I would keep doing that over and over and I'd go back on the route and I'd work on it. And eventually I'd get to where I could visualize it and actually make the move. (laughs) I mean, it makes sense. It does. does. Visualizing, it works to a point, but you know, what good does it do to imagine yourself does it help to visualize yourself climbing up a 20-foot section of sheetrock mm. with no holds? You right. know, it's floating up it. Well, no, that doesn't do you any good. It's, you have to, it actually has to be practical. You actually need to be able to do it. And, um, but, yeah, once you start believing in it, yeah, for me it was a big, it, it was huge. It, it actually made a, a difference. And I think it was mm. before people were really doing that. Mm-hmm. You couldn't visualize very easily if hangdogging was not okay mm. and you had to lower off after each fall. Sure. How could you visualize what was going to come next? Yeah. So it was just, again, just this rehearsal thing. Hmm. And I still do it. I go to the gym and I, you know, I'm bumbling along on some route and I'll make a little map and I'm yeah. visualizing this route that I'm trying to do. I love this. Yeah. So you, you were talking about how you've been climbing in the gym again and you'll have drawings of the, the routes that you've been projecting with all the, all the holds and everything. I have a quote here. Tell me about the fucking hard green route. It doesn't exist anymore. Oh, they took it down. And I never did it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, damn. I wish they would restore it so I could... Yeah. You worked on it for what, like 10 days or? Yeah. And I was so close. I was like, I'd been up to the last move like 10 straight times and I was rested and I was ready to do it. And they didn't tell me they were going to remove it. And I showed up one day and it was like, oh my God, it's gone. <laughs> so, but that's just gym climbing. I mean, it's just silly, but yeah. then again. It was also hard. It was 513 yeah, something. It's like, yeah, it was probably 13 minus, but it uh-huh. was, um, it just brought me back into that world. And I, mm. even at age, you know, I'll be 60 in, in five months. And, and even after my hip replacement and my, just everything I went through, just getting out of climbing and um, coming back, it's that part of my brain, that, that part that is 
enjoys that. It, it, it isn't, I enjoy it no less. Hmm. It's still every bit as exciting to me to piece together something. And it's just fun as can be to do that. That's, I kind of liked, you know, people have different things and different, different segments of the sport they focus on. I mean, obviously Alex Honnold focuses on a very different segment of the sport than I do. Hmm. But, um, you know, you find your little area, your little niche that you, that you enjoy and, um, nothing really, I mean, nothing filled the gap mm. when I left it. And that there, I, it's not like I found something else in my life that was like, Oh, okay. This is, gives me the same satisfaction as, <laughs> as piecing together this, um, hard route. Mm-hmm. You know, I was never a great on-site climber or a big wall climber. I just had my little niche that I did, and that gave me a satisfaction, and it still, it still does hmm. right now for sure. That's, which is great. Hmm. Uh, back in the '80s, you were also bouldering a lot, and uh, you told me a story a few weeks ago when we were at lunch about your finger strength, and it actually blew my mind. <laughs> it was really fascinating to hear, but uh, it doesn't sound like you were training on a fingerboard at the time, but rather, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were using the fingerboard just as kind of like a benchmarking tool to see where you were at. Well, but... there wasn't, there weren't fingerboards. Okay. There weren't hangboards. Okay. But so... You were telling me about, you had some, like a Metolius board or something, and you would hang one-handed in a full crimp position, and you were trying to make it to one minute, and you never quite made it to one minute. Yeah, it... it... Chris Jones from uh, when I was back in Eugene, mm -hmm. he would put up little wood blocks onto his rafters. Okay. He would hang on these blocks and do these boulder problems. He was incredibly strong. And so I just kind of grew up thinking that's just what you did. And so I always, <laughs> there weren't hangboards, but uh -huh. you, I definitely, you know, you could always hang on the door jam above your door. And I don't even know exactly how I did it because there weren't boards, but I, I mean, I had some natural talent in, uh, in some ways and other ways I didn't, but I always had kind of really naturally strong fingers. Hmm. That was just something that for whatever reason I had, but I always crimped like full on. Mm -hmm. I wasn't open hand strong. I was like the full on, you know, crimp with the thumb wrapped over the index finger. Yeah. And that's, that's how I would hang. That's how I would eventually when there were hang boards later in the eighties, that's what I would train with everything was done that way which mm. contributed to why my fingers no longer work yeah so but yeah i could um i think when there was the first simulator when that came out in 87 i would i would just right hand left hand i would hang off the the good edge which is probably i don't know three quarters of an inch or something yeah know, full full just first pad uh-huh you know and and just see how long I could hang. And I always wanted to try to hang, if I could hang one minute. From one hand. From one hand, that was always my goal. And I never, I never got it. But I, I was deaf, I was like 51, 52 seconds. First 30 <laughs> seconds, you just hang there and it would be like, just no problems, just kind of swinging your feet, swinging. And then you'd start suffering and it would, I just never could do it. And, and now I can't hang one second. Uh-huh which I don't understand exactly <laughs> why. <laughs> but, well, for one thing, I can't, uh, crimping, uh, that I've lost that strength. I, hmm. and, I, um, and as it turns out, that was a really bad thing. It's like, that's just common knowledge now. Do not, you don't train 
you don't do crimping all the time training mm-hmm. you know the the people you know the the training now where you're doing short duration you know five seven second hangs yeah you can't it's just not the it's not joints aren't made for that mm. so but yeah there was a time when i was strong the, it's those, fascinating those days, i don't know if you realize, are gone. <laughs> i think that's i think even by today's standards you had world-class finger strength i mean i don't know if i know anybody that can do that that can hang well but i i wasn't even then that's a sort of power but it's it's it, when you're hanging for that long it's not power it becomes a I mean, there are people who could hang for a very short duration on things that I could never have hung off of. Okay. I'm sure now. Yeah. You know, people don't train. Nobody trains by hanging for, trying to hang a minute on one handed on an edge. If they can do that, they're putting weights on themselves Mm. to make themselves heavier so you can. Sure. But I don't know if I know very many people that can hang one handed on that size of an edge, period, for Five well, seconds. I, I bet you a lot of people can. I mean, I don't, I'm sure. <laughs> it's still hard, even today. It's still really amazing. Was that, um, do you think that was a result of the hanging on the blocks and that sort of stuff? Or was it just, did you just have that finger strength from the climbing that you were doing? I, I kind of just had that strength. Yeah. It, was, I, it wasn't, um, I don't know. I mean, I I bouldered a lot, I, I, I but we weren't training. I, I didn't train. We weren't training. Hmm. So, um yeah, I, I actually, yeah, there was a time looking way back into the past when I was, when I was strong. Hmm. It's nice for me at my age to be able to look back and at least have done what I did so I can, you know, I can go out to Smith Rock and I can like, oh yeah, yeah, I've done that. <laughs> and now it's like, I'm, you know, f- struggling trying to do 5.11 out there, but it's like, I, it was nice to be able to actually do the things back back then it would be be really hard to try to work through those routes now it just wouldn't work for me i don't mm. i don't know i'd like to get in shape and i'd like to climb hard again but i don't think it's going to happen mm. you're climbing pretty hard in the gym from what it sounds yeah, like yeah but i mean it's that's it i climb pretty <laughs> hard in the gym <laughs> i'm really good at the green route and <laughs> And then the green route's gone, and it doesn't mean a thing. It doesn't... You go out to Smith Rock, and I go out to Smith Rock, and I'm like on the rock, which I've spent my whole life climbing, and I'll go out there, and I'm like just... I'm just stuck. I'm, I like don't even hmm. know... Like there's so many places to put my feet. Like what the hell do I do? And I, it takes me 10 minutes to climb a route that I should be climbing in two minutes because I just... My brain... You know how your computer when it's like buffering it's like the internet and that little thing is spinning little beach ball the little yeah it's spinning that's what my brain does when i go out and climb on real rock it's like what the hell do i do what do i so it's you know gym climbing has gotten me climbing again and it's it's great because it's gotten me to where i can be at least have some endurance and, and be at least mildly strong but um but it's made me a worse i'm a worse climber i don't uh. Yeah, but now I'm actually climbing at Smith Rock because I'm trying to do a redo the guidebook. And yeah, so I'm kind of fighting my way back through that, and mm-hmm. it's. I think I can get there. I think, I think it's legit. I think you do. Your brain just doesn't. You get used to the gym, and you just don't process. Because what I when I see at Smith Rock, I see. Um, too many options. Mm-hmm. It's not like I'm wondering what to do yeah. or what I could stand on. I can stand on everything. I see 
25 different footholds and mm -hmm. it's uh, i'm just i don't just there's nothing that's intuitive anymore mm -hmm. i think that will come back maybe mm -hmm. but so. so yeah so the guidebook so you before we got rolling you were talking about how you've been working on that again and and now you kind of have a fire under your butt to get it done by you said october the end of october yeah 500 new routes that's awesome yeah. And the last guidebook, what, it had like 1,800 routes? Well, there were 1,800, but there was bouldering routes in there, about 300-some bouldering routes. And that that was included in the 1,800? Yeah. Okay. And this new guide won't have any uh, <clears throat> bouldering routes or nobody. Smith Rock bouldering is not. That's not what Smith Rock is known for. And it's the book is getting so big. Mm -hmm. The publisher is like, you know, you have to you have to add 500 routes and keep it the same length. Mm. So the bouldering is just getting chopped out okay but still there'll be over 2,000 routes yeah um, cool you know the number of actual climbing routes is like and most of these things have been done in the last three or four years but it's increased 33 percent in three years mm -hmm. huge activity and motivation for people out there <clears throat> tell me about your box of tights <laughs> I, it's somewhere in my house. There's a box I have. I kind of save all my old stuff. and um, um, This goes back to uh, the video that I watched. I think it was uh, an add-on to the Pioneering Smith Rock video. <clears throat> and there's just a short segment, or maybe it was another one, but there was a short segment where the journalist was uh, with you and you were kind of showcasing your box of yeah. tights and you had an amazing purple pair with stars on it that was from La Sportiva, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I've kind of misplaced it. It's it's oh. somewhere in my house. I know it's there, mm -hmm. but there's a lot of my old... I have my old... I mean, it's just kind of funny. There was a... I have... I kind of saved all my old stuff. I threw out a lot more stuff than I wish... I wish I would have kept some of the old stuff, but mm -hmm. I threw out a lot of it. But the tights, I just couldn't... I mean, it's still... Have you ever climbed in tights? No, I haven't. Yeah. I, honestly, I feel like I need to... To be like a solid 514 climber before I put on tights. I feel like I'm not worthy of the tights. I'm, I'm being completely serious. Yeah, but what you might find is if you put on tights, you might suddenly be able to climb that. Oh my gosh. That's the way it feels. Oh, I've been doing it totally I mean, backwards. I still love the, I love, I, I mean, I don't put tights on often and I never do it in public, but I've, I've put them on occasionally. And when I put them on, I'm instantly more flexible and huh. I'm just younger. And I just, there's <laughs> something about that where you just feel like you can. Just the freedom. Yeah. The freedom and you can just move. So you're so stylish too. Everyone back then, like the, all the guys had tights and then like, you know, corresponding tank tops that, that complemented the color yeah. scheme. No, the eighties were a great time. It was, <laughs> yeah. Looking back, looking back at it. I mean, my. My daughter, who's 22, she'll look at pictures of me or videos, and she'll she'll just cringe. She'll just say, "Dad, what were you thinking?" She'll she'll just feel she'll be embarrassed for me. Yeah, because the it tights was, and the mullet, the and... tights and the mullet, and just and I explained to her, you know, that was just the 80s. It was like bright colors and big hair, and that's what everybody did, and it was kind of fun. It was, yeah, you can always tell the 80s. You see a picture, you hear music. Yeah, it was a very distinctive decade. It was. And then it, it sounds like it just ended as quickly as it started. Yeah, it just, it kind of needed to. One day, no one was wearing tights anymore. Yeah. And I don't even know why we started wearing tights. Huh. But yeah, it just came and it went and probably never to return. I don't think you're ever going to see, I don't know, the top climbers anymore. 
wearing tights. But yeah, I still have a box of tights. I still, I can still fit into them, but okay. I, I don't, um, I don't, I don't go there. <laughs> you also have a really fascinating reading practice. Um, you mentioned to me that you read every day and you listen to lectures and, and things like that. So tell me about your reading practice. Well, I, I like reading. I've read my whole life. I used to read just, I mean, I went to school. You know, I went mm-hmm. after I, I I got my finance degree from University of Oregon in 87. I went back years later, got my master's degree in business. I mean, I'm reasonably reasonably educated, but I, 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 I went to school and only to discover school in my degrees taught me, showed me what I didn't want to do in my life. And as it turns out, once I got my master's degree in business, it was like, okay, I don't want to do that. <laughs> I definitely don't want to do that. Hmm. But as I got older, I, I just kind of, I, you know, learning is a cool thing. It's nice to read and learn things and um, get exposed to new ideas. So um, I used to just read basically junk novels. Hmm. And, and I just started reading a lot of just classic classic books. I mean, there's a lot of wisdom and a lot of just classic books. And that's what I do now. I mean, Mm. I have not just a list of several hundred books, but I have a hundred books. I have my next hundred books just lined up. Wow. And I just enjoy just buying books. And a lot of them are just old, old books. And um, they challenge me. And some of them are really difficult. I mean, if you, like I started by just trying to read this, um, at the end of the century, they put together these lists of like the, the classic hundred novels of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And I found one of those lists and I just started like, okay, I'll, I'll do it. Yeah. And so it started with Ulysses by James Joyce and it just, and I'm, I, I have just, I'll be done in August with that hundred books. And then I, but now I have all these other lists. And so I have, I mean, I'm, I'm going to run out of life before I run out of books, unfortunately. <laughs> Do you always finish everything? Oh, I always finish. Really? Okay. Yeah. It's the climbing thing, the whole projecting. Huh. Sometimes you have to project books the way you project routes, because some of them are intensely difficult to read. And some of them are. Yeah. Try to read Finnegan's Wake. I, I, that's you know, interesting. I, almost... I read it. I read every word. It's, uh-huh. Yeah. But you, again, you have to project that. You just simply... It, a dogged determination. You don't read it for pleasure, even though somehow <laughs> when you finally are done with it, you think, whoa, that was satisfying. Do you always feel that way? Or are there some where you're like, oh man, that wasn't worth the time? Why not did not I... one. Really? Yeah. Oh, cool. That's cool. And how do the... And if, lo- it's, if it's... There are books where you read, I don't know, in any art form, you... When I was younger... I would listen to music, I would listen to read a book, I would see art in a museum, and I would think, oh, I hate that. Hmm. And and then you get older, and you start thinking, well, maybe the problem is not the art. Maybe it's not the book. Maybe it's not the music. Maybe the problem is with me. Hmm. Maybe I'm the one, you know, this is supposed to be something great. Maybe I'm the one that's just not seen it. Um, and it's true. I mean, a lot of judgments we have, it's what we're judging. It's not that our attitudes that, oh, this sucks, or this is no good, or this is overrated. It's not necessarily that it's overrated. In fact, it almost certainly isn't. It's more of just a limitation within ourselves or mm. views of things. So it's, it's helped me to just be open to 
open to to new things. Hmm. You get older, I mean, what else? You have to do it. You either do that or you just, you know, eventually you decline and you just, we all do, but it's, we might as well fight that as long as we can. Hmm. Do you have a most impactful book that, that stands out from that list? I, I don't. Okay. I wish I did. Or even a couple that come to mind that, that are favorites that you'd recommend? I, I mean, there are, yeah, it's, I don't know, like just a, just a classic book like Ulysses by James Joyce. I mean, that's a, it's a horrendously difficult book and somehow, um, I read it twice and somehow hmm. it, the last chapter of that was one of the best things I've ever read in my life. Huh. And so it's, even though most of the time I was reading it, I was like, what the hell? <laughs> you know, it was just an was really difficult, but not that I would recommend it. It's like, again, it's just a peep. Some people like that stuff and some people don't. If you just want a good read and you want to be entertained, no, pick up Stephen King. Don't, <laughs> don't pick up James Joyce. <laughs> Go climb a fun, steep, overhanging 512 somewhere instead of trying to bolt or not to be. Yeah, it's kind of the same way. <laughs> Is there something that you are excited about or looking forward to right now? With uh, with the new year, new decade. Well, I'm. I mean, I am looking forward to. It's a good thing for me with this um, book, and just being forced. It's not like I'm forced. That nobody's forcing me to do another guidebook. It's Myth Rock, and it's not like there's a tremendous demand or that the world is crying for a new Smith Rock guidebook. But there's 500 new routes. There should be one. But going out there puts me in touch with people hmm. and I have to, I'm very thorough. I have to do my research. I have to talk to people who've done the routes. I have to understand them. I, so this place that I have all this history, um, but a lot of times I avoid, I have to go out there and I kind of have to just get myself to go up on these routes and that are, you know, I have to do all these five elevens, which feel really hard. And I just have to, it puts me back in that world and I connect with the people and, um, and they're a lot younger, but they're no different than me. They're just these, the same, it's like, it's the best. It's for me, it's the absolute best. It's like just connecting with all the people, right? Cause I, I don't, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm a pretty quiet, introverted, reclusive person. I, I tend to just hide. I don't, I am not a promoter. I don't, my brand, the Alan Watts brand <laughs> would be stronger if, but I don't, I would refuse. I will never, I just don't do that. I don't want, for me, that's just the most repugnant thing that I can <laughs> think of is to try to promote myself, uh -huh. which kind of hurt me when I was, when climbing started to become a business. Mm. You know, Todd Skinner was an amazing promoter for yeah. himself. He did a, tremendous job of that. I was a terrible promoter. Hmm. I just didn't, and, and I still kind of am. Hmm. And, and I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there a little bit, but... We were talking about what you're excited about, the guidebook, looking oh, towards that. Yeah, and so now it's connecting with the people. Like, if, if I'm, I'm 60, almost 60 years old, I'm not, I'm not going to connect with many people. Mm. I, I have, I mean, it's, I have my family, which is very important to me, and a few friends, and, but... I'm not somebody that's just going to make friends easily, except if I'm out 
climbing or at the climbing gym, suddenly mm. I'm like Mr. Social and I, <laughs> I kind of know everybody and I'm talking to people and it's like, oh, where are you from? And, and it's just, it's just fun. It's mm. like, those are, that's my community. As I grow older, that is my community and it's not going to leave me. Mm. It's a wonderful thing. It's a tremendous gift I have because I mean, my wife's been working at the medical center here in Bend for 40, almost 40 years. She's going to retire. She's done wonderful work and she's going to retire. And a year after she's retired, nobody's going to care. Hmm. She's just, that's what happens. You do your job, you work your job, you spend your life and you, you retire mm-hmm. and you move on and nobody cares. And in, in climbing, climbing kind of gave me this thing where, I feel this connection and I'll, I, I've always felt it. And I, I now know I look ahead and it's not like I'm thinking, oh, well, in 10 years, nobody's going to have any memory of Smith Rock or anything I did in climbing. And it actually, it's not true because they're actually, people care about history. And I was part of the climbing history for a few years and it just is, follows me around. And it's, um, it's my in with Young people. I mean, how old are you? 30. 30. I mean, I don't talk to many people your age, and, <laughs> uh-huh. but I find myself just, to, again, I can connect with people. So, and you get older and you realize it doesn't matter whether you did this route or that route or how many tries it took you or all that. It's just to be able to have a connection with people and knowing that you have it and that you will continue to have it in the future. That's what I look forward to. Hmm. I don't look forward to the... Um, you know, Alan Watts 2.0, the new, the comeback, because it's not going to happen. It's just not. It will, my fingers will, you know, they'll limit me. And, I don't know. They might set another green route in the gym. Yeah. It's just not going to work. But there's countless climbers that I've never met that I would love to climb with and just talk with and, hmm. you know, have a beer with or whatever. And like that's, that's out there. It's out there every single day. And I, for me, that's, that is something I'm excited about. That's so cool. Uh, where can people connect with you? Are you on social media or anything? Or is there a way people can reach you? Nope. There's no way. For, <laughs> there's no way for to reach me. <laughs> that's the problem when you are reclusive like I am. I am not reachable. Come to Smith Rock and just yeah. hope to run into you working on the guidebook. Yeah, I'm not on social. Not on social media. That's okay. It always feels like for me, social media to be on that is something that I need to do, hmm. and that it would be something I would not do very well at because I wouldn't. There are times when I just am not social and I don't want to respond and I just, so if I don't really want to be a flake and I think mm. I'd be, a, I think I'd be a flaky social media person. <laughs> okay. Somebody would send me a message and if it's, I, they'd either hear back from me within a few hours or they would never hear back from me. <laughs> so I can understand. Yeah, I don't think I'm a social media person, but I'm not that hard. Smith Rock. Yeah. It's not that hard to connect with me. Yeah. Really, even though I can't offer much more than that. I, I can attest to that. So guidebook will be, it needs to be done by the end of October. should be out in June of 2021. Okay. A select guide out the next year. Oh, cool. Which is Falcon really wants. They found that the, you know, not everybody wants the big book with mm. all the history and all the routes. And it's, it's almost overwhelmingly confusing. Mm-hmm. So they, they found that the little smaller guides, which I never would have thought of doing, do well. So hmm. anyway, that makes sense if you're passing through for just a week or something like yeah. that. Yeah. And there's a small, there's a select guide that was done years ago at Smith Rock that still sells that I guess it'll compete with that. Gotcha. Cool. 
Well, I, uh, I want to wrap up by reading something. This is a quote from you from that uh, Hydro Flask film, The Pioneering Smith Rock. And again, I'll link to that in the show notes. But the quote from you at the end of that film, I, I just loved it. You said, The fact that I've done something, just this little slice of a little tiny sport, as insignificant as it is, I do recognize that it touched other people's lives. It's good to feel that I've contributed. People will continue to do this. And I, I can just say personally, Alan, that I've, uh, I moved to Bend seven years ago. I've been climbing at Smith for seven years and it's completely changed my life. And it's been an amazing experience and it's taught me so much. And I have you to thank in large part for, for all of that. And I know that, um, I know a lot of people who could say the same thing and, uh, you've really left an incredible, incredible mark on this place. And you were incredibly generous with, uh, with pushing the standards the way you did and, and challenging the norms the way that you did. And it's really been an amazing thing. So, um, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. And it, uh, again, that, that quote, when I hear it, it, I remember seeing that for the first time when I watched that video and I, at the end I was watching myself and I was kind of like walking along Smith rock and the music was playing and, and it was, I was like, wow, I, that was good that I actually said that because that, that's exactly how I feel. <laughs> yeah. You know, and, but it's, yeah, it's, it's cool that that's how it's all, it's all worked out because that's all we can, any of us do is you just, you know, hopefully make a difference in the lives of some people somehow. And, um, yeah, I, I gave what I had to give to climbing and to Smith Rock and to just the, you know, climbing in the U.S. and, um, and I've gotten back like way more hmm. and continue to give back, get back way more than I ever, ever gave. So for me, it's just a, a very good situation. Hmm. Do you have any final thoughts for climbers these days, for climbers that might be visiting Smith one of these days? Oh, um, gosh, I, I, I don't have final thoughts. <laughs> that's, that's a tough one because that's, that's when fine. you really have to just like come up with the lofty. Although I think in that interview... When I came up with that quote and just, which is really kind of it, it was just like kind of, um, you know, you're here for a little while, you just make your little difference in just the, whatever little tiny area you have influence on in your life, then, you know, that's all the more you can do. And hmm. I think that when I made that quote, the guy actually said, do you have any final thoughts? <laughs> and I said, no, I have no final thoughts. But then I came up with that. So I, I shouldn't sell myself short. Well, that's, that's a great one. I think that's something wonderful to leave. You know, I was with. thinking about it though. This is like, this hasn't anything to do with final thoughts. It was just, I was thinking about just the, the climbing and just how I was trying to get, I was trying to get better. I was kind of competitive. I was looking for, I mean, basically, um, I, in the 80s, I was people would call me a cheater. He's cheating. He's cheating. It's cheating what he's doing. Anybody can do that. He's cheating. And I gave a talk, and I looked up. I actually just, I'm just going to Google the word cheater. And it was like to gain an unfair adva an advantage or something like that. And it's like, that's exactly what I did. <laughs> I am a cheater. That's exactly it. I, I cheated. That's it. I, I came up with this. I was just open and creative and just like this, how am I going to get better? This is what I'm going to do. I cheated. Uh -huh. <laughs> and, but I've had this dream 
I've, I've, which I've had like year for years. And it's like, it's kind of a funny dream and I still have it occasionally. And it's always the same. It's like, um, I mean, I think back to when I was climbing, like at my best and kind of what it felt like to climb. And it, there got to be this point where climbing, I felt tremendously light, hmm. like just, I would climb and I'd, I'd have days at Smith Rock when I would be warming up. Like I'd do these traverses or these solos and it would be crisp and a perfect day. And I would have in my mind, you know, gravity is going to have to try awfully hard <laughs> to knock me off the rock. Because huh. I just don't feel like I'm going to get knocked off the rock today. I just feel so solid. And I would have this dream again where I am climbing. It's either like, I don't know, I'm just out climbing. And what's happening is I am lighter than air. And basically I am f kind of floating up. And so I'll be climbing this route. And what I'm trying to do is I'm kind of just like floating up it. And I'm actually trying to hold on to the holds to make it look as though, so that nobody can tell that I'm actually <laughs> not just floating. But it's where I'm holding on to the holds, but they don't realize I'm actually weightless and I can just float. And for some reason, I've always had this dream of just being at the base of a route, a really hard route, and just kind of floating where you're just touching the holds, but you're just floating up the route. And I don't know why I have that dream. And maybe it's, but there's always that element of I can't let anybody know what's really going on. And so I think it kind of stems back to all those years of cheating of being of trying to gain this unfair advantage sport climbing is an unfair advantage if you're comparing it to traditional climbing mm -hmm. so um yeah i hope we have that dream tonight it's kind of a <laughs> nice dream you imagine yourself at the base of the hardest route you've ever would hope to do and find that all of a sudden you're just rising up through the air with no effort and you're like grabbing onto the holes just so people won't see that it's like oh well he's just weightless he's floating up the route and it's like Anyway, it's kind of a funny, That's funny so image. Cool. All right, Alan. Well, uh, good. well, thank you so much. That was so fun. Content, so um, <laughs> you might need to trim that down. <laughs> I might need to. Maybe I'll need to publish this as a two-parter. But um, again, it's been a, an absolute pleasure. And thank you so much for your All time. Right. Well, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed, enjoyed right. it very much. <laughs> Cheers. Shake it up, stop when the clock gets 13 You've been working out your blurting With the weekend, you can freak out One in a million You're a gem shine when the light grows dim See one, one, two, three, three, four Cause, cause, cause No one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it Like we do it, like we do it Cause no one can do it like we do it like we do it, like we do it. We got the right, so we 